Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, April 25th, 843-661-0937 is the number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Um, wearing that Chinese-made polo shirt this morning. Yeah. Wearing my Chinese-made Under Armour shirt <laughs> uh, this that. morning. Uh, everything's made in China. Hey, um, <laughs> you want to get your head real tangled up first thing this morning? I mean, sure. while others are reading the National Review and the Wall Street Journal, studying and preparing for a typical um, radio show, you know, I'm, well, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. And I guess this is why you are one of the fortunate ones mm-hmm. um, to sit aside alongside yes. um, such I was just thinking that. And brilliance. Um, this weekend when I was while watching. While you guys are probably watching ball games, I was the race. watching a car or, race. Okay, watching the car race. Yeah. Well, why do you say that now? <laughs> I mean, why do you call it a car I race now? I call it now? a car race now because of what you told me your family says about you. <laughs> well, <laughs> It is a car race. It, it makes me laugh. It's a schoolhouse <laughs> and a car race. Right. <laughs> oh, man. I told somebody, uh, I was talking to one of my kids. I'm my middle kid. might have been 17 or 18. I said, turn left at the schoolhouse. He said, schoolhouse? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Schoolhouse? Would that be the school? I said, well, in your days, it's a school. In my day, it was a schoolhouse. Right. So, yeah, there's a race. I mean, is it a horse race? Did, didn't one of your well, let me ask you kids question. is the Kentucky that, Derby a race or a horse race? It's 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 a race and a horse race. Okay, it's a horse race. Yeah, right. Um, so so why is NASCAR not a car race? It is, and it is it a car. is a it's car very race. Accurate. So um, <laughs> well, I mean, it all started long, you know, many many moons ago when I said I want to get home by a certain time because the car race comes on. You know, and they're like <laughs> car race. Okay, right, well that be the same thing as a race. And Dad, he likes a car race. <laughs> And I do like a car race. Yeah, and yesterday was a phenomenal ending to a car race. It was race. pretty good. Yeah. It was a very good I ending did watch it. to a car race. Mike's going like, I'm from up there, man. I don't know what you got. And this is all this beating and banging and, you know, cussing and fighting and all. I just don't make heads or tails of it. No. But while, while we were guys, watching car races. While you guys are doing things that mere mortals do. And baseball games. Baseball games and, and car races. What are you and, doing? Um, well, Elon Musk is meeting with um, Twitter. Uh, trying to, you know, trying to wrap up his deal to be... Um, uh, the the sole proprietor of Twitter as a private enterprise. Um, yeah, Elon and I are doing similar things. I'm trying to figure out how many galaxies are in the universe um, while he's trying to buy. You know, you guys are. I mean, you can take the easy route. I mean, you can. You can. Um, you can watch the car race and the ball game. Well, I do that because I know when I get here on Monday morning, you will have done the heavy well, lifting. Over but the but here's the heavy lifting. You ready? Um, kind of put your thinking cap on for a second. You, you're more of a um. Uh, a space enthusiast than I am. You and Kamala Harris I do have a distinct understanding <laughs> I, I of space. I do enjoy the space. Um, yes. It connects us, right? Yes. I don't know what that means. That's what she says. Space does everything but connect us. Space would probably make us feel more disconnected than anything we begin to comprehend or understand. The deepest image ever taken is the Hubble Extreme Deep Field. Now, you don't get this anywhere. Bongino will not talk about this. Um, Limbaugh, even the great Russian Limbaugh, Carl, didn't go here, uh, as I'm capable of going here. Um, but the deepest image ever taken out there, where is there? I don't know. I mean, it's way, way, way out there. It's um, it's more expansive than even the monstrosity this uh, Talladega Motor Speedway. I mean, Talladega is the biggest race track that they have car races on in the world. Um but Talladega, uh, despite its um, enormous 2.66-mile trioval, pales in comparison to what the, <laughs> the Are Hubble you Extreme really comparing deep a NASCAR field. track Stick with to me the... for a second. So the, <laughs> the deepest image ever taken is the Hubble Extreme deep field. 
might say, like, well, where's he going with this? Um, it is revealed about 5,500 galaxies over an area that took up one, stick with me, one thirty-second millionth of the sky. In other words, um, we've learned more about the expansiveness of space through the Hubble Extreme Deep Field because it is revealed in excess of 5,500 different galaxies, but those 5,500 galaxies took up an area just one thirty-second millionth of the sky. Um, scientists estimate that there are about um, 10 times more galaxies out there than Hubble, even at its limits, is capable of seeing. That means that they believe, nobody knows this, but they believe there are about 2 trillion galaxies within the observable universe. I mean, just kind of stew on that for a second, guys. Now, that's nowhere near as much dead as we have, but, but I mean, that's another so, way to look at this. Since we throw the word trillion around, yeah, just as like if it's we're, nothing. We don't have any comprehension. If we did, we'd all, uh, we, we'd, we'd all storm the Capitol. We, we would have an insurrection. We would have a genuine insurrection, a real live <laughs> uh, insurrection, if we really knew what they're doing to the dollar and our purchasing power. But anyway, two trillion galaxies within the observable universe. We've observed... Um, 300 million. I mean, to some degree, we've analyzed our scientific community, our um, astrophysicists have analyzed um, somewhere south of 100 million. I mean, you know, somewhere south of 100 million planets and stars have been observed. Now, we've seen far more than that, but we've actually uh, researched as much as we can, um, gathered a little bit of data on about 100 million of these stars. You know what we've not found matches to? The Earth and the Sun. We found, you know, 100 of these, 1,000 of those. This star um, that is 7 light years or 100 light years away, it's got about 50 or 60 matches. Throughout the 100 million identity and evaluations we've done, and I'm talking about astrophysicists, and I'm talking about a lot of this is Hubble Extreme Deep Field. Some of this is um, th there are astrophysicists all over the world who have taken these images and this data and analytics and kind of put it into um, some sort of format. They understand it. I mean, I don't begin to understand it, but they do. But here's what the, the, the great debate about is there life in other places. Um, you and I have argued that its, it's expansiveness suggests that probably there is. Um, maybe. And what they're trying to do, there's a couple of these astrophysicists who are trying to figure out God in this thing. You know, where's God in the middle of all this um, creationism? And they have um, begun to conclude. I mean, it's not, it's not mainstream science in the world of astrophysicists. There's this one guy in Cambridge, Dr. Ross, R-O-S-S, and he explains it better than I can. He, he says that basically of all the data we've gathered in these, you know, these hundred million planets and stars. Now, we've not even touched the beginning of the uh, of where, you know, if we could um, see these two trillion galaxies, there's no telling how many stars and, and planets there are out there, but the, the hundred or so million that we have some data on. Now, I don't know what that means. Does that mean they know the soil sample? I mean, they do a PERC <laughs> test? <laughs> I don't have any idea it. what that means, but there's been some evaluating done on about a hundred million planets and stars They've not find, found a single match to our solar system and the Earth and, um, and Sun uh, individually. I just think that's amazing. That's phenomenal. 
They, they've got this star that has a uh, 100,000 matches. You've got this planet that has 500 matches. You have another star over here that has, you know, 847,000 matches. You've got our sun, and they've not found a match. Our earth, they've not found a match. Um, our solar system, they believe that some of the planets are essential. Some of the um, <sighs> asteroid barriers. I mean, these, these asteroids have hit these other planets, and they believe that the planets are there to keep the asteroids from hitting Earth because God kind of intended to put up shields around the Earth so when these asteroids fly through, um, you know, the, um, the unknown at, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of miles an hour, um, they would, I mean, destroy the Earth. So God had a plan. You know, it's, it's kind of crazy to hear astrophysicists kind of humble themselves, but in a weird way, some of the, um, I would imagine some of the highest IQs on the planet, I mean, dumb people don't gravitate to astrophysics, right? I mean, not so smart people yeah. normally end up with radio shows talking about <laughs> astrophysics, but astrophysicists are normally dealing in astrophysics, and that's a little bit different than, you know, kind of plundering around the political world and finding something to opine about uh, for four hours. But I, but I caught myself uh, infatuated and almost captivated by reading some of this so you mean, to, I mean, this is what you and I would sit at a bar and after a beer or two or three, uh, you would say, so you're telling me <laughs> that there's not another earth out there. No, Rev, I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you what these astrophysicists are beginning to conclude that there's not another earth out there. There's not another sun out there. There's not another um, arrangements or alignments of planets that resemble in any way, shape, or form our solar system. They're not, I mean, you know, the, Dr. Ross basically says, um, I mean, he's accepted the Christian faith. He's an astrophysicist from Cambridge, I think, uh, who calls himself a Christian. That should get him fired, but maybe he's a closet Christian. Um, but he says um, that he's beginning to uh, understand some of the complexities by humbling himself. Uh, in other words, yeah, there are a lot of things I don't know, but as we begin to know more, it's a little bit like the Bible. I mean, I've always read this about the Bible. When someone really, really, really intelligent sets out to disprove the Bible, they normally come back believing it more than they did when they begin setting out trying to prove its inaccuracies. And it's it's fairy taleness, so to speak. So yeah, the Hubble Extreme Deep Field um, is allowing some of the brightest minds on this planet to explore all the other planets and the vastness of space. And by that, I mean the two trillion galaxies that are within the observable uh, universe that they're beginning to kind of lead them down the road of saying, ain't another earth out there. That's not how they said it. Ain't another sun out there. <laughs> I mean, there, there's a lot of matches. My, my youngest son called um when we were, he was like third grade, there were twins there, and he said, they match. <laughs> yeah, they do match. They're, they're twins. Uh, they're identical. To, anyway, um, so yeah, while you guys are out watching the car race, you know, playing golf, drinking a beer, doing whatever it is you're doing, Musk is trying to meet with some of the uh, the big financiers and, uh, and shareholders of Twitter, and I'm trying to figure out what these astrophysicists think about, you know, whether there's a, uh, a match to Earth and a match to um and a match to the sun and, and we know that's kind of the um I don't want to say it's the um they wouldn't be the uh the Earth would be the Archie Bunker of our solar system it would be the central character right mm. I mean these other planets are important <laughs> but the Earth would be uh, in other words um Jupiter could be Meathead and Venus could be <laughs> Gloria and uh, Mars could be Edith but Archie Bunker is the central figure so Earth is the central figure of um 
of our solar system, and the sun would be Norman Lear. Yeah, I mean, it would be an even bigger deal than Archie Bunker was. It's the, kind of the thing that holds everything in place. So, um, yeah, as they've looked and observed and tried to make heads or, or tails of things they don't know, they're beginning to contemplate that maybe, just maybe. And, and Dr. Ross basically said, if there's another solar system out there that resembles ours in any way, shape, or form, it's probably because God decided to do it again. That's a pretty weird observation to make by someone who— You don't who, expect to hear that. No, you don't expect to hear that at all. So so I'm reading, and I'm going like, well, okay, what does that word mean? Let me Google that word to see, make sure <laughs> I understand exactly what they're what they're saying there. So good thing uh, you and Elon were taking care of business this well, week. Well, I mean, Elon's making <laughs> money. the rest of us were goofing off. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, but that's the luxury you have yeah. when you— um, uh, Elon was meeting with— uh, You want to get real specific here? Mm-hmm. Uh, he met privately Friday with um, several shareholders of Twitter to basically um, extol his virtues about what his plan is uh, if they accept the proposal. Um, kind of a, um, he's trying to put the board in a yes or no uh, decision. I mean, either yes, we vote to allow Elon Musk to buy Twitter, or no, we do not. Um, his main pledge Friday to um, several major major shareholders and i'm talking about i would imagine it was um I mean, there, there was some money managers in their hedge funds i would imagine private equity um funds but he he basically made a pledge to them that he would solve the free speech issues um that that he sees as plaguing the platform um some of the algorithms and moderation requirements that you and i have discussed um and he says the country i mean he's actually he's actually trying to sell this to um, some of the hedge funds or some of the uh, private equity firms that own enormous stocks in Twitter that, um, you know, the country's better. Elon's an interesting dude, man. I mean, he is a, the more you read about it, the more you scratch your head. Is he one of us? Is he one of y'all? Is he, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yes to all. I mean, he's a transhumanist. He's a, um, I got some interesting here on um, transhumanistic theories. Um, this is a guy that spoke at Davos, not not Musk. There was a guy that spoke at Davos about um transhumanism and if we don't embrace transhumanism transhumanism is humanism is i mean in a nutshell eugenics i mean it's trying to just i mean it's called h plus guy gave a speech at um at davos called h plus humans plus in other words we don't want mere mortals anymore we want to um i mean eugenics want to program design men and women um to be better than they previously were so transhumanism is kind of a silicon valley way of uh, describing eugenics that has been around and, and talked about and intelligence is that where he's yeah headed? yeah it's, it's ai but it's uh h plus hmm. is kind of the davos way of i'm uh, describing it but let's go back to um because musk i mean he's talked a lot about transhumanism i mean you know that that's where he freaks a lot of people like me out because i get my um i don't know my my the anchor of my existence i think lies in god and a belief in God, a belief that God set all of this in action, in motion, and man limits, or man has limits in comparison uh, to, 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 to God. Musk would be one of those, yeah, but his limits are a lot more extravagant than you would ever imagine. So anyway, Musk is, um, he met face-to-face Friday with several um, shareholders in New York City. Over the weekend, he had a series of video calls um, with, with the majority of the video calls, actively managed funds that are invested heavily in Twitter, uh, I think it was eight or nine or ten um, video calls, Zoom calls, I guess, that he had with um with some of these um 
actively manage funds that own major shares of Twitter. Um, the one thing he discussed was allowing longer tweets. I mean, he thinks you be, should be able to express yourself in a few more words. Reduce the platform's reliance on advertising. It's kind of interesting. I don't know how you monetize uh, without advertising, but it went through. The Wall Street Journal had an article, um, Thrivent Asset Management Large Growth Fund or Backing. Um, let me get this other name of company. Uh, well, he's already got financing lineup. We talked about that. He's got about uh, $21 billion in equity that Musk will provide by himself. And then he's got... Um, 25 billion um, in borrowed money from basically nearly every global blue chip investment bank there is in America, aside of those representing Twitter. I think the reason remember said Goldman was not involved in this, mm -hmm. they are. They're on the Twitter side. Oh, ain't a deal that big gonna happen without Goldman uh, in the mix. So Goldman's doing some of the work on behalf of Twitter. Um, you can't, you know, double dip, so to speak. Um, Bandera Partners LLC own about a million shares. He talked to them over the weekend. And from what I'm gathering, and I have sources in transhumanism and the Hubble Extreme Deep Field, <laughs> from what I've gathered, he made a lot of progress. Mm. I mean, he really got some of these um some of these investors, not the board. I mean, he's convinced the board's not going along. I mean, he's convinced himself of that. The only way he does this is to lean heavily on these investors who have enormous um, stakes in Twitter and convince them that your investment is in better hands if I'm in charge than it is if the current board and construct and algorithms and, you know, moderating requirements are, um, or the way of the, or the, the carry the day. So, so, um, transhumanist and Tesla SpaceX founder, Elon Musk appears to be a little closer, um, to sealing the deal. We think we'll know by Friday. Oh, wow. Yeah, the Wall Street Journal says that there's some sources, and they're sourcing um, anonymous sources that um, that, that basically say this $54.20 a share offer, um, the Twitter board has a fiduciary responsibility. That There's no doubt about this. And I, I, Musk's strategy appears to be go to the investors. Now, he can and still they, do that. put pressure on the oh, board, Oh, without obviously. question. I mean, with no question about it. They can say, hey, man, I've talked to Elon. These things you're saying publicly um, are not what he's saying privately. I mean, he's saying, here's his plan. Here's how he thinks he can make it more profitable. Um, the way Elon believes we can, that he can make it more profitable is to make it less censoring, to truly be a, um, a de facto public square where people are allowed to express their opinions, however conservative or liberal or, or crazy they may be. Um, the, the most interesting part of this to me is Elon Musk may be one of the guys in this country who believe you should be allowed to yell fire in a crowded theater. I mean, he's kind of a free speech absolutist, and he's unapologetic about being a free speech absolutist. But um, that's kind of the, to me, it's the most interesting story of the weekend, that um, that he seems to be incredibly motivated to make this work. Um, there's uh, We did find out how he's going to generate the, um, the, the cash that he needs um, because he, in his offer, he had explained how he's getting his money and it's going to be to liquidate um, a number of shares of uh, Tesla. This has nothing to do with SpaceX. It's all about Tesla. Um, but yeah, in some of the filings that, that the Wall Street Journal read the filing and reported on the filing, um, all of his money comes from a liquidating of his Tesla stock. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it'll be interesting. They believe, the Wall Street Journal being they, they believe that we'll have some clarity by the end of the week whether or not Elon Musk is going to indeed um, buy Twitter 
and make it a public company, excuse me, a private company, you know, will he reissue stock? You know, I, I thought about this hypothetically. I mean, if Musk buys it, all of a sudden he's the sole proprietor. He owns it. He does with it what he wants to. Uh, can Elon say, I want to go back public. I want to go public again um, with me in charge. But the tender offer is a little bit complicated. I mean, that's kind of his, um, his backup plan. But the tender offer still exposes him to some of the realities of the poison pill. As he, um, as he buys Dave Baker's 100 shares and Mike's 1,000 shares and Ken's 50 shares, it, at some point in time, the trigger kicks, when it gets to 14% ownership, the trigger kit kicks and others are able to buy the shares at a, at a discount or reduced uh, purchase price and it dilutes. It makes it even more complicated. So, yes, the tender offer still has to deal with the poison peel. But, um, but the Wall Street Journal basically says if this board is going to make a, uh, you know, a decision in the financial interest of the shareholders, it's going to have to accept by the end of the week um, Elon Musk and his offer of fifty-four dollars and some odd cent per share, and um, and he's got a, I mean, he's got it. I mean, it's, it's been uh, filed with the SEC. Um, everybody knows where the money is, where the money's coming from. Um, Morgan Stanley and Bank of America are the major financiers of the money he's borrowing. Um, there's some collateral he's putting up on uh, as Tesla stock, but he's also liquidating uh, a good bit of Tesla stock to come up with the twenty-one billion it takes to 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 basically um, make the down payment. <laughs> on buying Twitter. I mean, imagine that. How much do I need to make as a down payment to buy Twitter? Um, <laughs> he's come up with a number, and it's $21 million. Let's take a break. Billion. Yeah, billion. I'm sorry. With a B. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. First call of the week is there. Let's go to the phone. And our first call of the week is Bert. Hey, Bert. I'm the first call. I, I just wanted to call in and say it is a very interesting change that you went from the first 20 minutes or so being sports to being comedy routine. It's hilarious. I think I like it better than the sports. Listen, you tell your sources, tell your sources to look into Kepler 452B, which is an Earth-like planet, and, and they'll find a whole bunch of Earth-like systems out there, and they won't have to look as hard. And our system... About the only thing unique about our system, which is it's very interesting, is the moon. But if you do the homework I gave you with the Sumerians and the Indians branching to the Norse and the Greek, you find out why that is because our Earth is got a moon that was driven there by one of the gods. And that'll get you into the whole branch of gods, and then you'll understand why I say no god created everything, none of them. But anyway, I appreciate the twist in the show. It's really entertaining. Thank you, Bert. You reminded me. So the Braves lose two or three. Gamecocks lost a three-game set to Auburn. Yeah. Um, wow. I mean, Gamecock baseball, how the mighty have fallen. Um, thank you, Don Staley, uh, for just giving the Gamecock fans anything to be excited about. Uh, so why why about are you and, thanking Don Staley for uh, for a bad baseball weekend or a bad baseball well, I mean, team? I'm just, I'm not t- t- I mean, the Don Staley, thank her for giving us something to – Something to be about. happy about. Yeah, but there's very little to be excited about if you're a Gamecock fan. Um, That's true. The athletic programs seem to be on the rocks. Um, yeah, football is on the yeah, well, upswing, the right? Bowl. Yeah, won the mayonnaise bowl. Won one game more than they lost this past yeah. year, 7-6. Yeah. and six. And we're um, moving in the right yeah. direction. Well, yeah, 7-6. and six. That's a, a full game over 500, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I said the, the right direction. Bowl, yeah. I didn't say of we've course. gotten there yet. Well, I mean, gotten where? 
<laughs> wherever there is. Well, seven and six with a mayonnaise bowl win, yeah. which was quite an accomplishment um, from where they had been. So, yeah, um, Beamer and let, let's, okay, let's be fair. Thank you, Shane Beamer and Don Staley, for giving Gamecock fans um, something to be proud of or something to be happy about, something to be excited about. Um, change at basketball. We'll see how that works out. But, um, but the baseball program, wow. My, the mighty have fallen. Terrible. Um, yeah. I mean, Tanner leaves the dugout, goes to AD. And um, if any program you expected to maintain relevancy, it would have been the the baseball program. But it's a shadow of its former self. If I'm not mistaken, you would know better than I. It's below 500. I mean, they've actually lost so. more baseball games than they've won. To be totally honest, I've lost interest. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's interesting yeah. that you've lost interest. I was debating with a Gamecock fan yesterday. He's real frustrated about some of the NIL and Transfer Portal. And uh, there's just no – I mean, Gamecock fans have become unbelievably indifferent. And I'm telling you, I would rather have angry fans than indifferent fans. Um, it's, it's kind of the joke. You know, thank God for Don Staley. You kind of say that in a joking fashion, but that's, in all honesty, kind of where it is, where it is and where it, where it stands. And Darius Rucker did his free concert for the students last night in celebration of the national championship. The women's national championship. Right. Oh, that's worth the, a concert. But anyway, yeah. um, we live in this woke world, so yeah, you know, women winning championships is just as important as men uh, winning championships. Not as far as I'm concerned, but I'm sure I am in... Uh, the minority. I want to find this. Thank you, Bert, for reminding us to make sure we, yeah. we get sports. And tell us all about them gods and planets that remind you of Earth and all. Um, you got Bert believing in a bunch of gods. You got a uh, astrophysicist from Cambridge. I'm going to side with the astrophysicist from Cambridge on this one that says that the Earth is incredibly unique. He didn't say singular. He said unbelievably unique. And our solar system is unbelievably unique in that it, it allows for the existence of, of human beings. Um, now, I want to be careful. Dr. Ross, the astrophysicist, did not say, you know, there is no life anywhere else. See, the expansiveness of these, you know, two trillion galaxies within the observable universe, uh, he basically says it's less, li- it's less likely. Um, as they learn, it becomes even more less likely. And, and what he's basically arguing is, They've not found a planet similar to Earth. They've not found a star similar uh, to the sun. And um, I guess for those two to coexist, I mean, we know, uh, well, we don't know. We, we, we estimate that the uniqueness of the Earth, sun, and moon arrangement and the allowance for human life to exist and, and thrive and prosper. And um, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, it's got to be a very unique arrangement because if we have um, evaluated to some degree, these millions and millions and millions of planets, we'd have found somebody to say hey to, right? I mean, you got to believe that if we've looked, um, I mean, if we've observed 5,500 galaxies and we've yet to bump into another human being, we've done a pretty good job of going out there trying to see what it is um, relevant, and we've not found anything yet. Um, I've read some of that stuff, Bert. You know, when you plunder around the Internet, you find all these crazy sorts of things. I'm not saying what Bert said is crazy, that there, there's a school of thought and a and a way of thinking that there are many, many, many other places out there that could support human life. We've not found them yet. And we're looking further today than we've ever looked uh, before. So um, it, here's my belief. You ready? As if anybody cares. Mm-hmm. If there is life on another planet, it's because God, 
the single God of all the universes and galaxies chose to put it there. I mean, that's, you know, I'm not an astrophysicist from Cambridge, but, but if there is life on another planet in another universe, in another galaxy, um, or in another galaxy, then I think it's because the same God that formed this solar system formed that solar system and allowed civilization to be created there, maybe the same way he did here, maybe not. Let's go to the phone. Here's Cocky Mike. Morning, Mike. Hey, guys, what's going on? Hey, Mike. Hey, Ken. Uh, I- I'm going to argue with you this morning because I believe you misread that article. How about do me a favor and send me a link to it? Let me see it. It's actually an interview. It's not an article. It's an interview. Oh, okay. It's Is a it YouTube. A somewhere? Yeah, it's, he's giving a speech at... Oh. One of these highfalutin, you know, astrophysiology, okay. pl- I mean, it's just one of those, um, I mean, he, he talks about theology for about 20 minutes, and then he talks about yeah. science for the other 20 minutes, and he's basically arguing that, that God is the creator. God created a unique God. ecosystem of which life uh, exists. We've looked further okay. than we've ever looked at any time in our existence, and we've not found anything like it. Well, here's the problem with the way you're in, the way you're passing this information on to me is the reason I want to hear him himself. The way you're passing it on is is not accurate in the the true sense because it is true that we have looked deep deep into space and seen all the, the Hubble deep space photographs you're talking about identified 1,500 new galaxies. But we don't have data on anything inside that, those galaxies. Each one of those galaxies contain anywhere from 300 to 500 billion stars, and that's just the estimate based on our knowledge of things. There are probably 90% of our own galaxy, the Milky Way, we have not yet looked at. So when, you, when he says or you say that, and I'm not disputing the guy because I don't, obviously I hadn't heard his speech, we don't have data on a bunch of stuff. Well, I mean, now, he says that. He says we've are, got we've got data on about 100 million planets and stars. Well, that's easy to do. That's, that's, less, than, that's less than, what, 15% of our own galaxy. But of the 100, that, that of the 100, million, of the 100 million observations we've made, we've not been able to find anything like this planet and this sun. Right, but there's a whole bunch of junk out there, big guy. But you're kind of playing into you're, you're playing into my hand. I mean, you're kind of playing. You're supporting my argument. I am playing into it because I'm I'm telling you the truth, not and I'm not hyperboling either way, one way or the other. But what I'm saying is there is so much out there that when you say we have data on, because that's the term you used that he used, we don't actually have data on all of the. You know that most of the, the photographs that you see or space are not photographed. They are computer-generated images based on um, color spectrums, and, and it's what we estimate they look like. And and I have I have that argument with people, oh, look at this great picture. Well, it's not actually a picture. It's a, it's a computer-generated image based on our analysis of all the different color spectrums and all the things that happen coming from that far because it would be impossible to have a quote photograph but it there's a lot of stuff out there that we can see but we don't have a clue what it is yet so um i'll agree with i'll agree with the fact that the united the earth is unique even that we have an atmosphere that protects us from the 
all the gamma rays and stuff that the sun would just burn us to pieces on. It's quite unique. Um, I, I guess time will only tell whether there's something else out there. You guys have a great day. Thank Love you, Mike. Show, Thank man. you, Mike. I don't know that Mike's disagreeing with me. Um, there's, yeah, there, there's there's a song in John. John Mellencamp's got a song. Is it, it a famous song? But in the line, there's a line of song that says, a lot of things I know and a lot of things I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we know more now than we've ever known. And the guy basically says, um, I think there are 170 estimated, there's 170 billion estimated galaxies in our universe. I mean, just kind of stew on that for a second. This estimate, 170 billion estimated galaxies in our universe. Um, this person says that we have um, gathered data. He didn't say what degree at what level. But we've gathered data at some degree on about 100 million stars and planets. And we've not found anything like our sun and the earth that we inhabit. I mean, that's in essence the argument. It's not an argument. It's just a point I made admitted this that morning. The deep space dive, you said, was one thirty-second of a millionth of the vastness Correct. of the space. Right? The, um, the Hubble Extreme Deep Field revealed... 5,500 galaxies over an area that took up just one 32nd millionth of the sky. So, yes, Mike's exactly right. There is a, uh, a figuratively a ton, not a, not literally. I mean, it'd be, a, you know, millions and billions and trillions of tons of things we don't know. And scientists are making estimations. Um, that's all they can do. Um, a lot of this is very... Um, arguable and debatable. Bert debated it. Mike's debating it a little bit this morning. The point he's trying to make is the earth and sun appear to be very unique. He didn't say exclusive. He didn't say singular because there are things out there we don't know. There may be another earth and another sun, but of the hundred million observations they made, they found matches to a lot of things. There's a bunch of red Corvettes and a bunch of blue blazers and a bunch of, you know, black Cadillacs. Ain't many suns and, and there's actually no match to this earth and no match to this sun that they have found and kind of the coordinating interaction of. And, uh, but, but once again, the guy says, as John Mellencamp famously said, <laughs> there are a lot of things we know and a lot of things we don't know. Let's go to the phone. We'll be back. Excuse me. Let's go to a break. We'll be back on the other side to take the call. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Friday. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Dale in Florence. Good morning, Dale. Hey, guys. So I read a lot of astronomy stuff. Um, here's, here's the thing. One of the reasons that they think our solar system is so uh, unique is because Earth has a moon the size that it is. That's pretty uncommon. Um Earth has a, a moon a sixth the size, over 20% large, as large as it, its planet, and, and that just doesn't happen except for, for very large planets like Jupiter and Saturn very often. Here's the thing about planets around other stars. We can't really see them. We can infer their existence by the amount of light that they block as they cross in front of that star or the amount of wiggle that they impart in that star, you know, the gravity of the planet pulling on the star and so forth. We can't really see other planets. We infer their existence. And, and Mike's right. We, we, we've only looked at a very tiny percentage of what's going on in our own galaxy. We can't see planets in other galaxies at all, I don't believe. Um, it's hard to pick out individual stars in other galaxies, 
unless they actually explode and go nova. So we infer a lot of things, and I'm not saying they're not right, but there's a whole lot more that we don't know than what we know. And I think that's God's plan, so that we have to have a certain amount of faith in him for th- to, to, to cover the things that we don't know. You guys have a good day. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that, Dale. 843-661-0937. Got time for another call? Let's go there. Mike in Darlington. Hi, Mike. Hey, uh, a great esoteric uh, discussion. But if uh, if I remember correctly, I believe the section of the sky that was chosen for the deep field uh, uh, photo was uh, chosen just because there was appeared to be nothing there. And uh, over the time exposure, they realized there was a heck of a lot of stuff there and just an incredible amount. But uh, there's a lot. It, it's beyond uh, comprehension how large this universe apparently is, and that's just what we can see or infer that's there, as uh, the previous caller said. Uh, but um, right now, there's some things going on on Earth, I think, that uh, perhaps might take precedence over uh, the astronomical dis- uh, discussions uh, although they may be related in, in some sort of way. But uh, we're in a really dangerous time economically and uh, politically, and I don't un, I, I really don't see how we're going to work our way out of the, uh, this. Uh, Mike, we got to take a break. You can hang on if you'd like. Back in just a minute. Okay. I figured I wasn't the only self-taught astrophysicist in the bunch. <laughs> I knew some of our listeners <laughs> shared um, how many galaxies are in the universe? I don't know. Don't have any idea. But but it is very um, it's intriguing to explore these sorts of things. And I told Rev a second ago, um, it's interesting how many of you are interested in this. And I guess the most interesting part of this is the unknown. There are certain things we know. There, there are certain things we don't know. There are a few things we don't know and probably never will. And I think this is one of the secrets um, that man is so intrigued by. There's a country song um, where, where he says, you know the world's flat because people leave town and they never come back. And and a lot of us look at it, that's good enough for me. You know, uh, the, the simpleton mindset is probably uh, the easiest mindset to be in. But, uh, but when you start getting to Hubble Extreme Deep Field, um, how many galaxies there are, um, what do we know, what don't we know, um, there, there are a myriad of opinions. And... The only thing I can say is I'm intrigued, I'm fascinated, um, I'm also bothered by it because I'd like to know some of these things that I don't think we'll ever know. And I think Mike made valid points and Dale made valid points. The, the, the expressions they made were obvious. They're interested in it. Mike has a degree of interest in this sort of stuff. Dale has a degree of, of interest. And I think most of us should be curious about the world. Oh, it fascinates um, me. Yeah, well, but I mean, the, it fascinates the vastness, me. It, it, the vastness makes my head hurt just to think about it. And, you know, I, I told Rev, who put all that out there? I mean, the argument Dr. Ross makes is God did. And there's, there, there's a uniqueness about Now, I want to be clear. He does not say, I'm sure there's not another earth and I'm sure there's not another sun. He says of all the exploration we've done, of all the analytics and data that man has gathered over the years about planets and and systems and and space, you know, the determination now is 
that there's not a match to Earth. There's not a match to Sun. That Dale's talking about the Moon. Um, let's do this. I mean, if you don't mind, uh, I told you there's about a 30 or 40 minute video or audio out on um, YouTube, and I listen to it all. <laughs> but the first half is theology. The first half is God and the improbable planet and God's design, the intelligent designer behind, you know, while we're all here floating around however fast and however far we're going to uh, float from here to the end of um, to the end of time. But um, but he makes it clear that there, there's a lot of things we don't know. But of the things we do, Earth and its sun is right now very, very, very unique. ...that you actually have to start the solar system with five gas giants where one of them gets kicked out. If you don't start with five, you can't explain the Mars-Earth uh, orbital system. Do, has, has that kicking out... Uh, do you run into people who would use something like that to support like a catastrophist model? Um, you know, like the old Velikovsky kind of thing. Um, well, it's not a planet coming towards the earth. It's okay. a planet going Being away expelled. from the earth. Okay. So it's the opposite of a catastrophe. Okay. And actually there are two models. One which says that the fifth gas giant was completely ejected. And one that says it was rejected to about 50 times the distance from the sun that Neptune is. And actually, a group of astronomers are trying to determine if indeed that very distant gas giant planet exists. But either way, it explains yeah. our solar system configuration. You know, obviously, this, you know, everything you just said there isn't unique, unique to you. The scientific community knows this. The, the ones who, again, are in the astronomy community, the astrophysics community. But you still have so many people. Um, I don't know if the right word is predisposed to wanting there to be extraterrestrial life or believing that it is? Do you think something else is motivating that? Well, I would say from a non-theistic perspective, you have to believe that life is common in the universe. Mm -hmm. From a Christian perspective, you can have it either way. You can say God doesn't waste miracles, sure. so he only has done it here, or God is so enjoying to create, he's done it many times. And so... It wouldn't be a shock to me if we find life on another planet, but I would conclude it's there because God miraculously created it. But so far, everywhere we look, we see hostility. We have yet to find a galaxy that's sufficiently like ours to be a candidate for life. We've yet to find a star that's a candidate or a planet that's a candidate. I'm not saying we'll find one, but right. we've been looking hard for over 50 years, mm -hmm. and everywhere we look, we see hostility. The only place that's favorable for advanced life is right here. Now, on the reverse... This is kind of an interesting... Uh, once again, it's about an hour long. It's uh, 45 or 50 minutes, somewhere there about. But uh, the first part of it is theology, um, why he is a believer, um, what led him down the road of uh, convincing himself that, yeah, all this is not random. It's not happenstance. These uh, planets... and I mean, obviously, he gets into the weeds. I mean, that, that, that is it's a massive gas ball. I mean, I, I don't I can't begin to comprehend um, anything the guy says other than he, he's a very decorated and acclaimed um, expert in that field. And he levels with you. I mean, I think at the end you heard him say, I'm not saying there's not miraculous life in other galaxies. Um, we just not found it yet. And if it's there, it's because the same God who chose to place this solar system uh, in motion did it somewhere else, was so enjoying of his creation that he decided to do it again. But I think the key word he said, everywhere we've looked, we found hostility. 
and it goes into these gas planets and all these other sorts of things. Um, it's very interesting to me. Maybe not be interesting to you. Uh, obviously, it is to some of you because you've called in and chimed in. And um, so, yeah, when, when you're sitting around, you know, reading the funny papers, <laughs> Musk is trying to buy Twitter. And I'm trying to understand the existence or the beginning of existence and how likely it is that life exists in other in other galaxies. And I guess the, 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 the enjoyment that I have in the pursuit of understanding more about this is I know there is no final answer. I mean, you know, I, I, there is no way we will ever begin to comprehend the vastness of space, but we're learning as we go. And as we learn, I think the, the key word again, as we're learning in the scientific field, what we're finding out, we are in a very, very, very miraculous and unique solar system. Let's go to the phone. Here's Dave in the PD. Hello, Dave. Uh, good morning. Uh, somebody said something about schoolhouse earlier this morning. Uh, to me, schoolhouse is a, a, a barbecue place there in Scranton. Is that correct, Ken? That's correct. That's There you go, man. So th- there's a plug for them. When you talk about solar system, uh, Jorge Solar came back to uh, Atlanta. Wasn't that neat? Did y'all see that? Oh, they gave him his ring on Saturday night. Yeah, his World Series I did not see it. I saw it. I saw it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Standing ovation. uh, The guy tipped his hat. Uh, That was just, that was so neat uh, to see the guy come back to Atlanta. And he's he's beating uh, restaurant inflation uh, in Atlanta because I'm sure he can get a free meal anywhere there. Uh, and I always remember that uh, during that World Series, the wiki page kept changing uh, as those games uh, went by. But Ken uh, Trump was in Ohio. Did you see that? I was too busy trying to find out what's out there in the solar system. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, well, and man, I'm trying to link uh, solar to your solar system, whatever. He, he endorsed J.D. Vance over the weekend, uh, and that's next Tuesday is J.D. That's where you're going to see where the rubber hits a road, where the petroleum products hit the petroleum products. Uh, so that's going to be interesting. Um, he was in Delaware County, which is one up above Franklin County. Uh, that's Columbus. But this, all this stuff we've been talking about, man, it's going to come to a head here next Tuesday. Uh, J.D. Vance, Donald Trump, uh, the solar system, Republican Party, America first, next Tuesday. Thank you, David. 843-661-0937 is our number. I guess if we have some uh, Ohio voters listening this morning, there's your public service announcement. <laughs> Get out and vote yeah, well, next me, Tuesday. Next Tuesday, <laughs> and that, that's a plurality election, so the winner will be um, next Tuesday. It won't be a runoff. Uh, do we have another call? Okay, 843-661-0937 is our number. Um, we'll we'll kind of pivot away from the, um, the, you asked me a question, what's astrology and astronomy? <laughs> I honestly don't know. I mean, you know, astrology to me is like Sagittarius and Capricorn and right. Billy Ray Valentine. And remember, remember the scene at, um, in uh, Trading Places, Billy Ray Valentine, Capricorn. Uh, so, yeah, I was born in December. That makes me a Sagittarius. Uh, but, but astronomy is, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's an exploration of the unknown. And, uh, and it's kind of weird. One, 
uh, you explore the internet, and one leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. Next thing you know, you say, "Man, this looks a bit interesting to me," and it is very interesting to me. Um, but, but I, I, you know, the, the astrophysiology or the astrophysicist community—I mean, th- those people have dedicated um, their their life to trying to explore these things. I've always felt that I would never go into a field um, where the the final answer was never known. I mean, I would rather go into a, a business or industry knowing that there's a completion date. I mean, if you spend 40 years in the, uh, the field of ac- uh, space exploration or astrophysicist, uh, you'll never know the answer. I mean, you'll know more than you did when you began. And I think Dr. Ross um, talked a little bit about, you know, uh, we found, what, 3,200 new planets in the last decade or so uh, of the 3,200 we expected that maybe some, you know, that there would be one or two a little bit but similar to life. you remember that that is such a small fraction of what's out there. How, and he, how can it really and mean? And he readily confesses yep. that, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, and that really, that, that validates the point I've tried to make about, you know, uh, when you go into a career and you think you'll be in that career for 40 years and you accept that you'll know 1% more at the end of your career than you knew at the beginning. Let's say at the beginning of his career as an astrophysiologist, he, uh, or astrophysicist, I'm sorry, um, at the beginning of his career, he, we know one half of 1% of what is out there. At the end of a 40-year career, we know 1%. We've doubled the knowledge that we know of the, um, the unknown, but we still don't know what 99%, um, is it 99% or is it 99.5%? We don't have any idea. And I just, I would have a high degree of frustration knowing that, um, that if I dedicated my life to try and better understand the, the universe and the galaxies and the Milky Way and the black holes and the planets and the, 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 the gaseous energy. Um, I don't want to know by the end. I don't want somebody to give me a award and say, hey, man, we know, uh, we, we know not more than we did when you began, but we know all of these things. And I just think they're, they're you know, is that God toying around with us? It's a little bit, I mean, I can honestly bring, uh, bring in a correlation with this and climate change. Uh the humility of the scientific community in confessing that there's so much we don't know about those things, but yet those same people or some of those same kinds of people, that's unfair to say those same people, some of those same kinds of people are so emphatically sure that they know what the temperature of the planet Earth is going to be 75 or 100 years from now if we don't do these things or that. Uh, imagine Dr. Ross sitting out with John Kerry and Al Gore and them try to argue with him on climate change, and he began talking about Venus blocking asteroids and some of the gaseous energy and some of the moon and what moon contributes to. <laughs> uh, I mean, you would find out how um, vain and shallow Kerry and Gore really are. You would find out they're just politicians, nothing but politicians, hawking a bill of goods, hawking an agenda, and when confronted by people who have dedicated a lifetime to better understanding, it would be so interesting to me to know what Ross thinks of John Kerry and Barack Obama and Al Gore. I mean, if he were sitting, I'd want him about half drunk, you know, when he would really tell you what he thought. So, so Dr. Ross and I sitting at a bar um, and he's had a few drinks and all of a sudden I say, Hey, what do you think of this, um, this climate change that John Kerry and Al Gore and Barack Obama are so sure of Now, now, obviously he'd give a very technical argument. And a very sophisticated argument, but I gotta believe he would say those men are full of themselves. They know not what they what they speak of. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is our number. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes.
843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Friday. Someone on the phone. Let's go there. Linda in Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Linda. Uh, good morning to everyone on this beautiful day. And it's always interesting to me that <laughs> you're always talking about something that I just listened to on NPR. And I am, and I'm going to preface my statement, I am an NPR weekend listener, which usually means I'm mad on Monday morning. <laughs> but, <laughs> but in talking about the environment, two weeks ago, there was a segment about having lawns and how we are destroying our environment. Because why do we need lawns? And this, in that weekend show, every show talked about people in their lawns, the lawnmower, the gas, noise pollution. I mean, the grass contributing to the CO, carbon dioxide, and guess what? You need the trees to have oxygen. So I don't know where these people were going. But if you listen to them, what they my conclusion is they're really talking about population control. They're just not using those words, but that's what they're really talking about, population control. And now comes the question, what population control? Who are we going to control? Are they the Asians, the whites, the blacks? Are we talking about the number of children being born each year, which we know in the United States is going down, according to our census, going down. So who exactly are they talking about? And we know when they're talking about electric, we poor people have a hard time paying our bills. So are they meaning us? Are they... Are there, many, are there too many rich people who can get on a plane and go wherever they wish to, which I'm happy for? I mean, what exactly are these people talking about? And the last thing they talked about this weekend, which is my question for a change, I didn't know white people didn't grieve that y'all don't have sorrows. I mean, and this was this program this weekend was about um, reparations. And how we how they gonna actually figure out how to give black people reparation? But I, I heard those words and I couldn't believe that they came out of someone's mouth that apparently white people don't grieve. But I know I've heard you talk about different people who have died. I know you talked about your mother and your father. Sound to me like you grieved over them. But that's my state. My question: Do white people grieve? Thank you, Linda. I mean, I do. I mean, I can't speak for all the white people listening, listening to my voice, but but I certainly do grieve. I think grief's the, uh, grief is the price you pay for loving someone. I mean, I think grief is necessary. Um, I don't want to ever stop grieving. I think you owe it to the people that you love so intensely to grieve until you die. And if you make an impact in people's lives, they'll grieve you um, long after you're gone. That's just, um, I mean, to me, it's kind of a, uh, it's a humanistic gift we give to culture and society. Um, I was thinking about this while Linda was talking about NPR. NPR, because one of the questions that Dr. Ross was his predisposition, you know, about, um, so we found all these planets and none seem to be similar to our universe or our um, solar system and the um, the uniqueness of life on Earth. Um, do you believe that a lot of the reasoning is um, a predisposition that people have? And he's talking about atheism and the Big Bang and those who don't believe in a creator, intelligent um, designer. I've always felt this way, Rev, and this is kind of a spiritual argument I'll argue against climate change. I, I believe that the creator of the universe, the earth included, 
is not going to allow other creations of his to destroy his greatest creation. The earth will be destroyed at some point in time. The Bible makes that clear, but God will do that. And I just don't believe that, you know, um, God's ultimate creation, this ecosystem that allows life to sustain itself, is going to be destroyed by the very people that God put on this earth um, as a gift to sustain them. That's just bizarre to me to believe. And I just, for, I, I can't imagine in a million years uh, or a billion or a trillion years, now that we're talking about uh, some of the unknowns um, that, that, you know, and I, I go back to the point I made. So you got Dr. Ross, Al Gore, Barack Obama, and John Kerry at lunch. And they begin talking about, you know, um, life and the earth and the solar system and the climate and the weather and how one orchestrates with another and what we know and what and what we don't know. And very quickly, you would find out how inferior their understanding is and how low, it's, it's kind of interesting. They have the biggest platforms, you know, of which to express themselves and someone who genuinely and with some degree of humility, because I think you heard the humbleness in his voice. I don't know all of these things. We know more now than we've ever known, but there's so many things we don't know. And then you get Kerry and Gore, who just emphatically say, we know. I mean, there is no doubt about it. AOC, we know. I mean, I, I'll, I'll say this on the record. I've said it again. If you believe in John Kerry, Barack Obama, Al Gore, AOC, and some of the nonsense of climate change, you're a fool. I mean, you're not gullible, you're not naive, you're not politically activist. You are a moron and a fool. If you believe that these guys have figured out, and these ladies, and these scientists for that matter, let's bring in the scientific community. The consensus of the scientific community says, you know, 98% agree that if we don't get off fossil fuels in 10 years, um, the earth will cease to exist as we know it. If you believe that, you're a fool. It's a foolish way of thinking because here's one of the more accomplished people, an astrophysicist, who says, I don't know. I mean, there's so many things we don't know that we don't understand. But, but John Kerry, Al Gore, Barack Obama, and some of the modern scientific community have tried to convince you, and many have fallen for it. They've tried to convince you that they know for sure what the impact man has on the planet and what that impending impact will be 25, 30, 50, 75, 100 years from now. The absurdity of that is, is, is scary. People talk about the right-wingers scare them to death. You know, the Trump crowd scares them to death. Well, when I think of people who really freak me out and cause fear and panic in my world, it's those who believe in the religion that, that has become climate change. I mean, it really is. I, th I think about liberalism and conservatism, more taxes, lower taxes, more regulation, less regulation, and I get it. I mean, I understand that there's a, a legitimate debate to be had about that, and I know exactly where I stand, and I think I stand on the right side. But, but when it comes to climate change, the self-assuredness that some people have because they read an article in the Atlantic. Oh, yeah, and here's how you fix it. Spend all this money, tear your economy down, stop using fossil fuels. Because some 27-year-old some twenty-seven year old reporter from the Atlantic or the uh, New York Times went to Davos and heard you know them proclaim that the science is settled. I mean, the if you really, I mean, I mean this sincerely, if you fall into that camp, go get help. I mean, I can't help you here, but go get help. Because if you believe that, you'll believe about anything. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Morning, Breeze. Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, kid, did I see something over the weekend where our, our Republican-controlled legislature and governor couldn't get an election integrity bill passed? 
Can't get it out of the, yeah. Can't get it out of the Senate. Why the hell not? There's some procedural ways that the minority can slow things down in the Senate, um, but there are some very aggressive things the Republicans could do in the Senate. They're just choosing to not do them right now. Well, are there any Republicans standing in the way of this? Breeze, I don't know that. I I don't know that. I need to do a little more uh, research before I say anything. I'll tell you what, you got my word. I'm a little sick of it. I'm a little sick of it, you know. I'll get some clarity for you by tomorrow. I'll find out what's happening in the Senate. I still got some buddies over there. I'll make a phone call today, go on the air tomorrow, and find out if this is all Democrats or some of the Republicans are playing around, too. Okay, thank you, brother. Hey, listen, what do you think the end results could be with uh, saw the Wall Street Journal reporting that your boy Elon and Twitter are talking a little bit? I was really worried that uh, that Twitter would just as soon you know, fold before they let him buy it. I want, what do you think is going to be the end product there? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Uh, the, the Wall Street Journal is um, reporting this morning that Elon Musk – and Twitter are close to striking a deal. They talked over the weekend. We touched on it a little bit at 6 this morning. Um, Musk met privately several times Friday with shareholders. Um, I'm talking about major shareholders of the company to basically um, extol the virtues of his proposal um, while, while basically saying that the board has to make a decision, yes or no. I mean, it's cut and dry. I mean, there's an offer on the table. You either honor your commitment as a fiduciary to the shareholders or you stay politically um, motivated. You stay woke. You stay whatever it is you choose to be. Um, but I think the the board is going to have no no choice. I mean, I really see this coming. I think Musk, by solidifying the financing, uh, in other words, he has explained, he's filed, here's where I'm getting my $21 billion, and here's where the rest is coming from. Morgan Stanley and Bank of America are financing the majority of it. It's really every blue chip finance house in Wall Street or in New York City, except those that are representing Twitter. And I think Goldman may be the bank representing um, Twitter. Uh, but but yeah, Musk met a lot over the weekend. He actually had some Zoom calls, or he don't want to call them Zooms, uh, video conference calls with um, Thrivet Asset Management. I think that was a company, or excuse me, a, um, a private equity firm he met with. He, uh, Bandera Partners is a big um, holder of Twitter stock. He's convinced the majority of them because after the, after the calls and the video conferences, they basically said, well, here's a quote. He has an established record at Tesla. He is the catalyst to deliver strong operating performance at Twitter. That means profit. Um, they have about a 2% stake in Twitter worth about $160 million. Uh, Bandera uh, make sure I'm, Bandera Partners owns about a million shares at about $400 million, $385 million worth. Um, he met with about six or eight different, you know, private equity uh, firms, LLCs that own um, a lot of the shares of Twitter. And he's convinced about everybody he's met with that, you know, this has to be done. And when you look at Twitter's track record, they have chosen um, censorship, woke, political correctness, whatever you want to want to call it, they have basically deferred um, profit to making sure the algorithms stay the same, making sure some of the moderation requirements stay the same. Um, now, now Musk is telling some of these uh, some of these financiers that the majority of what he's doing is not to make himself wealthier. He's expressed in multiple meetings, look, man, I'm good. Imagine that. I mean, I, you know, I'm good. I mean, I, I could liquidate and go home and never have to worry about 
anything else. But he's convinced some of these people that not only is this a free speech issue, this is in the best interest of America and, and the world. You know, we can't allow certain companies in the private sector. I mean, they, 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 they're not breaking the law. That's what we've got to understand, guys. I've heard all weekend, this is about free speech. This is about censorship. The First Amendment um, does not allow the government to censor speech. There's nothing about uh, the First Amendment that says a corporation uh, isn't. I mean, if we wanted to, we're a private enterprise. If we wanted to, I tell Mike, Mike, don't you let anybody on this phone that disagrees with anything I say. We're not breaking the law. I mean, I think we have less of a product. I think it's unfair to those who have a, a disagreeable opinion, but we're not breaking the law. The First Amendment doesn't disallow us over the public airways from, from playing games with who gets on and who doesn't. I mean, we know that to be the case, because if that were the case, CNN would be shut down tomorrow. The New York Times would never print another um, newspaper, and the Washington Post would cease to exist. I mean, we know that censorship happens. It's just that Twitter has become, um, in Musk words, the de facto town hall for where we express ourselves and where we're allowed to disagree with one another. And I just believe that when Musk saw, and I don't think Musk is a big fan of, um, of Trump, I mean, I think he's more of a libertarian, and he'd be probably more in line with conservative values and, and you know, less regulation, less government. I mean, all those um, Silicon Valley guys seem to be a, a little bit libertarian. Teal and, and Musk, uh, Zuckerberg, not so much. Um, but Zuckerberg's kind of, um, he's made friends with Obama. He's made friends with some of the Democrat leadership. You know, it's kind of interesting. Musk doesn't have any associations at all. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he's got friends, but he doesn't have any association with the Democrat Party or the Republican Party, for that matter. You've got Zuckerberg on one side. Let's call him a tech titan. You've got Zuckerberg on one side, $450 million. You've got Teal on the other side that spent, what, $100 million, somewhere thereabouts. I mean, both have billions and billions, but they become very politically active and organized. Um, J.D. Vance was down to his last 300000 in that um in that super pack of which is trying to get him elected next Tuesday in um in Ohio and Teal writes another three million dollar uh two point five million dollar check um so they've got enough money to advertise and get to the finish line in fine fashion um you heard Robert Cahaley Friday say he believes that will get you know um J D Vance to the finish line and I think Robert kind of sort of predicted a J D Vance victory in Ohio um. So they're, they're kind of competing against club for growth money. Um, the club for growth and Trump are aligned in some races. Um, Arizona, I think even here, I think the uh, the Russell Fry campaign has the support of the club for growth as well as the support of the Trump Save America Super PAC and the Trump endorsement. Um, but this is cutting both ways in a lot of um, different places. But Zuckerberg has aligned himself with Democrats. Teal has aligned himself with Republicans. I don't know that Musk has aligned himself with anybody. I mean, he's been one of these um, kind of island sorts of guys, you know, and um, uh, transhumanism and artificial intelligence and, and atheism. I mean, there's some things about him that concern, you know, those on the right. And then, you know, the anti-censorship, uh, free speech absolutist concerns some of those on the left. And I just don't think he gives a damn. I mean, I just really and truly, I think he's a cowboy without a hat. I mean, I've actually seen him with a hat on. Here recently, I don't know if you saw this over the weekend, but it, it's reported pretty reliable sources for what that's worth today. But it's reported that Bill Gates reached out to Elon Musk about philanthropy and, and said, hey, man, if you have a few moments, I'd like to speak with you 
about philanthropy, and Musk responded, do you still have a half billion short position on Tesla? <laughs> and Musk, uh, excuse me, uh, Gates responds, yeah, I do. I've not, uh, I've not unwound that yet. And he says, well, take a hike. I mean, you're not putting your money where your mouth is. Tesla's doing everything in the name of, um, of energizing our economy outside of fossil fuels. And if you're shorting the stock, it's obvious you're not as altruistic as you're trying to lead people to believe. It's more about a buck with you than anything. In other words, you think we're going to fail or you, you think the stock is overvalued. That's unfair to Gates. Gates is not saying that, that Tesla is going to fail. He just thinks Tesla is an inflated stock, which is probably uh, the truth. But Musk seems to be one of these guys that is, as I don't know, tries to stay as pure as he possibly can on some of the uh, proclivities he holds and some of the stances he takes. So, I mean, he, he basically made, to me, uh, Bill Gates look like a hypocrite. You know, you want to talk about philanthropy in the name of climate change because Musk has let it be known that he thinks the more we wean ourselves off fossil fuel, uh, the better off we'll be. But I don't think he does it. In this, um, in this absolutist fashion. I don't think Musk is one of these guys that say, hey, um, Obama's right, Kerry's right, Gore's right. You know, we're burning the climate up right, or we're burning the planet up right before our very eyes. If, we don't, if everybody doesn't drive a Tesla by dark, you know, we'll all burn to smithereens and kind of hold it on for dear life in the North Pole or South Pole. Or, I mean, that's some of the craziness that these people talk. But yeah, um, I'll try to find out for Breeze what's happening in the Senate because I did see over the weekend that some of the election integrity law that got out of the House was not progressing as many expected and hoped it would in the Senate. May try to reach out to somebody during the next break or two. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. This is very interesting. Uh, Thursday, uh, excuse me, November 7, 2013. Why does that day matter? November 7, 2013 was the day Twitter became a publicly traded company. The stock today is 18 cent higher. Then nearly a decade ago, when Twitter did become public, the closing price on Twitter's first day as a public company is 18 cent higher, excuse me, 18 cent lower than the closing price this past Friday. I always say, follow the money. I want to be a hypocrite here. Um, here's how you know something's up. Uh, Rev said Zero Hedge is reporting that, uh, and the New York Times is actually reporting this as well, that a deal will happen maybe today, tomorrow at the latest. Um, but here's how I think you know something's up. Uh, we talk about where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, Tesla stock down 4% in pre-market trading. Um, Twitter stock is up a good bit in pre-market trading. Um, you got these journalists running around trying to, you know, report whether, I guess, outscoop one another yeah. on an imminent deal between uh, uh, be first. And, um, and his, his primary backers, uh, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America has a big part of this. Um, Bloomberg and CNBC are now saying that negotiations are in the final stretch um, and assuming negotiations continue to go smoothly. Um, Twitter could be a privately owned company by the time some of the legal language, you got to believe that's what they're sorting out now. Um, I just think must put them in a corner. I mean, that, I don't think they had any choice. Um, they could refuse the offer, but the board could say, no, we're not going to accept the offer. But I think lawsuits are the major component and the major contributor here. I mean, somewhere and someplace, the board sat down and said, look, guys, um, we like censorship. We're a bunch of leftists. Uh, well, we like the fact that Hunter Biden's story was not on. Uh, Putin has an account, Trump doesn't. Um, you know, the Hayseeds, the hillbillies that voted for Trump. You know, we like the fact that we censor them, we frustrate them, we control this public domain. 
but we still are obligated to operate under our corporate America policies. And corporate America says as a board, we are a fiduciary and we have an obligation to maximize shareholder value. And this guy's made an offer. And we try to blow it off as unserious because you know how Elon is. I mean, he, he pops off and he says things before he thinks about it. Well, now he comes back with Morgan Stanley and Bank of America. And, and here we are. So, you know, uh, when Tesla's stock is down, because I went back and read the article in the Wall Street Journal, um, it's suspected or believed on good sources that the $21 billion in equity that Musk would provide himself um, is going to be by him selling existing stakes or shares in Tesla. And then, um, so he's got a legitimate deal. I mean, here we are. And, um, and it'll be interesting to find how dug in uh, some of these uh, folks in Twitter sphere are. 843-661-0937. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. We'll be back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. So there's a lot of reporting out there. Reuters is uh, reporting now that... Um, Mike, if you don't mind, turn that to CNBC and let's see if we can get some uh, updates on uh, follow the money. I mean, I can assure you of that. If Twitter stock is up and Tesla stock is down and some of the pre-market trading, that leads me to be bullish that Reuters reporting is right, that Elon Musk and Twitter or the Twitter board have reached some informal agreement that will be formalized once lawyers get together and... Um, you know, billable hours. You can't do it a weekend. You got to make it take longer than <laughs> of that. Course. Uh, and these are probably not $50 an hour lawyers that are negotiating uh, some of this contract. Channel, yeah, let's see what um, CNBC has to say about um, what's going on there. But follow the money is what I've always said. So the guy that revolution is trying to revolutionize, um, you know, passenger travel and space exploration um, is also trying to um, have a heavy hand or an important hand uh, influential hand just showed the pop in Twitter stock price. Okay. So Twitter's up yep. and okay. Well, that to me, that's follow the money guys. Mm-hmm. If Twitter's up, Tesla's down. That means that, you know, some of the Reuters reporting and wall street journal over the weekend, that $21 billion um, worth of Tesla stock will be sold. Um, and that will be used as the basically equity payment or down payment. Um, so bank of America and Morgan Stanley, and there's some other financial houses. It's really every blue chip financial firm um, that's not a not representing Twitter. That's that's what this uh, boils down to. So it looks like Elon Musk will pull off uh, one of the great coups and uh, and now have a hand in what he refers to as the de facto town square and um, and where he believes. Uh, free speech should exist. Censorship should be um, not even considered. So here we are. So <clears throat> Musk is a very bright guy, obviously. He has Tesla. He has SpaceX. He's launching rockets into, into, into space. Um, this boring company that he's involved in and a few other companies I've read about. So, But is there a chance he gets so focused on Twitter that you know Tesla... Become, he becomes less focused on Tesla and it may suffer and, and SpaceX. I mean, what do you... Th- that's, 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 that, that's interesting. That's an interesting point you raise. Could Elon Musk be um, transitioning from the guy that is trying to revolutionize the auto industry into the guy that, it, it may, may, I mean, Musk seems to prioritize things that he believes are most important. Um, space travel, colonizing Mars, um, revolutionize the auto industry in a way that we're um, off of fossil fuels and the internal combustion engine is obsolete. Um, does he believe that free speech is more important than both of those? 
I mean, it is kind of a, um, it's the First Amendment. I mean, there isn't a, there isn't a amendment of the Constitution, you know, that we, we need to travel in electric vehicles or explore Mars, you know, find out if we can colonize Mars or not. I mean, it's fundamental when you really think about it. One of the fundamentals of life is the, the ability to speak as you choose, to speak your mind, to say your piece, um, to express yourself however you see <laughs> it's fit. It's supposed to be in this country. Yeah. But, but so maybe Musk finds this challenge uh, more attractive and appealing and important for mankind. He always, Rev, if you listen to Musk talk for more than 20 minutes, that there's this contribution to mankind. When, when, he, when he's asked about Musk, or excuse me, when he's asked about Bill Gates, and he says, what has really been his contribution to mankind? When he's asked about Warren Buffett, I mean, the guy's made a lot of money, but what has Warren Buffett really done uh, and, and contributed to betterment of mankind? I mean, he's philanthropic and he's given all his money to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and they're going to make the world a better place. And I guess that's making uh, philanthropic or philanthropic contra- comp- con- ah, contributions. Easy for you to say, uh, not me. But um, but yeah, I mean, is he? I read something over the weekend about Ford Motor Company. Pulled it up during the break. Um, you know, they 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 kind of admit that we are toward the end of the internal combustion engine. I mean, Ford has basically divided their company, Ford EV. And Ford, you know, I, I guess internal combustion. They don't call it that. They do call the the division Ford EV. I can't think. Maybe it's um, you know, Ford old fashioned or whatever. I, I'm just being funny here, <laughs> facetious here. But um, but th- there's a. Uh, a wonder, wonder if they believe that because that's where they think the market is truly going, or is it because the government is laying on the pressure? I think that they believe in the long run this is a more efficient way to travel. I mean, there, there's still something. I mean, there's great beauty in the the explosions that send metal go in certain ways. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the internal combustion engine has a series of explosions that drive. You know, uh, we talked this other week about you know pistons up and down a chamber in a in a cylinder wall um, that drives a crankshaft, that drives a drive shaft, that moves an axle, the axle moves the tires, tires go down the down the road. That's not a very efficient way of traveling. And I don't know much about the electric vehicle, except that it's kind of, it's magnetic in nature. I mean, I was in manufacturing, so I understand electric motors on drill presses and, and, um, and lathes and, you know, uh, things like that. But, uh, but uh, you know, magnetic fields, I mean, that seems to me that if the force is generated by a magnetic field and not a series of explosions in a cylinder wall, I mean, that seems to be a more efficient way of doing things. We just, we, we always believed that there was potential in electric, we just couldn't harness the power and and create the torque necessary to do these these things. But there's a, a Ford vice president of, a man, of America's manufacturing uh, named John Savano Savana, and he's um I mean he said that there's a still here's his quote I'll read it verbatim. There's still a long way to go from getting out of the combustion side when it comes to the trucks. We don't believe it could happen before. 24 or later the combustion side of our commercial vehicles will, will be here for a while longer um right now he says i looked at the plans for the next three years and our workload are very steady at both our exits engine site and our annex engine site and i'm quite happy with that now now he does praise the electric f-150 lightning pickup truck gm um, has something similar to that this isn't specific about ford but but he did note that he thinks the transition to electric vehicles will come quicker than even he 
anticipated earlier. He just thinks the 2035 deadline for all new car and lot truck sales to be electric is unrealistic. Um, his quote, I don't think we nor they will be able to transition out of the heavy duty trucks as quickly as um, predicted. So, uh, you know, I think these, I think GM, I think Ford, I think Toyota, I think the, the what I call the legacy manufacturers, I, I don't think they've embraced it, but I think they've accepted um, that we're heading this way. Now, I, once again, I, I would love to say that the government kind of got out of the way and let the market forces dictate when and how and how much. And But but naturally, as somebody who understands a little bit about it, I'm not an engineer, but I understand a little bit about engineering. If I've got to have a series of explosions to move a bunch of metal to move a car down the road that I could potentially do with a magnetic field, I'll take the magnetic field every single day. Um, I don't think any, I don't think the most conservative Republican is opposed to electric cars. I just think we're opposed to the government dictating and distorting the marketplace in such a fashion that it doesn't do it the right way. So, you know, I don't think GM and Ford are appalled or bothered much by, you know, you'll have to find something to do with the Essex engine plants, the Annex engine plant. I would imagine you retool, you repurpose some of those facilities. But we are, I mean, I'll predict this. Um, my grandkids will buy more electric vehicles than they buy in, uh, vehicles powered by internal combustion engines. Now, we've had the discussion before, and I'll have it again. Uh, the the cruise ships, the freight liners, the airplanes, the tractors, uh, the the Caterpillar uh, road plows and, and bulldozers, you know, the earth-moving equipment. I mean, I think we're a long ways from having a magnetic field um, energized electric motor that does that sort of work. But, but I would imagine as we transition and the technology gets better and better and better, yeah, we, we could eventually, I mean, I will probably live long enough, I hope, um, to see a, a percentage of cars, a noted percentage of cars on the highway powered by electric. And I'm a fan. I mean, I've told you before, I'm pulling for Elon Musk. And I guess your concern, um, is he going to get so involved in Twitter that he loses interest in Tesla? Um does he have quality? I mean, I would imagine he's got the best engineers and the best managers at Tesla, uh, but he's been c- kind of the um, the visionary. I mean, he's been the guy that he's the spoon that stirs the drink, so to speak. And if he gets hung up on this First Amendment issue, um, yeah, may- maybe Tesla does struggle. Uh, maybe there's some excitement. Let- let's get real creative here. I mean, if you're playing the long game and you're kind of thinking out of the box, today would be the day to buy. Ford or GM or Toyota or Nissan stock, uh, because if you believe their EV divisions, and I'm talking about electric vehicle divisions, are, are a little bit behind Tesla, and Musk is going to be consumed by, or his attention is going to be sidetracked by, you know, what he's going to invest in Twitter. I mean, he doesn't have any choice but to be a big part of Twitter because he's got a lot of his personal wealth and borrowed money at Twitter. So he's not going to hand that off to some friend of his. <laughs> hey, I bought you a company. Go run it the best way you know how. Remember you and I went to school together and you were so damn good to me on sharing your pizza? Well, here's a company I bought for you. No, I mean, Musk is not going to do that. He's going to be very, very hands-on, and he's not an octopus. I mean, he doesn't have eight legs. He's got two and one uh, one on Tesla. What does SpaceX? You know, how to all, I mean, he's got a lot of things going on, um, but he's very competent, talented, uh, and visionary man. 843-661-0937. I'd love for someone. I mean, nobody owes me anything out there. But I'd love for somebody out there listening to my voice 
that understands the nature of what makes an electric vehicle work. I mean, I understand the magnetic fields and I understand electric motors and, and lathes and drill presses, but, but I don't have any idea nor comprehension of the lithium ions or the magnetic fields. I understand the internal combustion the engine pretty good, but this, this has to be, I mean, obviously it's kinder to the environment because you're not emitting CO2, you're not burning fuel, but, but what are you doing? I mean, how is the energy created to drive these 3,000-pound right. cars you don't hear a lot down the road? How, how they mine lithium. Yeah. You know, I, and and it, what, what, it, what environmental there's impact gotta that be, has. There's got to be a mechanical engineer or somebody versed in, in you know, at least a, a better understanding than I have about, you know, how do you power? Uh, once again, the internal combustion engine requires uh, a series of explosions that, that move a bunch of metal that move tires and a vehicle down the road. What, what, what drives? I mean, aren't, aren't locomotives, those are, those, those are electric motors that are powered by those big diesel engines. But I right? don't understand it. I mean, I don't have a, a, a comprehension of, you know, what, what sort of electricity, what, you know, what, what happens inside. Um, there's got to be fewer moving parts. I mean, I've read that. The beauty of Tesla is there are far fewer moving parts. Electric vehicles, there are far fewer moving parts. Once again, the internal combustion engine is just a bunch of explosions that, that move a bunch of metal, that, that move rubber tires. Let's go to the phone. Tony in Calhoun County listening to WTQS. Hello, Tony. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Um, I want to talk about Tesla and uh, Elon Musk. For the last nine years, we've experienced censorship and banning and shadow banning and all that going on. And Congress is saying they can't do anything about it. It's a private company. Well, here I have a prediction for you. The minute Elon Musk takes over Twitter and heaven forbid he starts talking about buying Meta or YouTube, Congress is going to get involved and they're going to regulate the market. And that's going to hurt Twitter even more because they're going to walk all over Twitter using the power of Congress. That's an interesting thought, Tony. I hadn't thought of that. So they're, they're fine with not regulating as long as the liberals are in control. But if you get a, a exactly. guy that's a free speech absolutist, we can't have that. It's mm -hmm. time to intervene. Exactly. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting. Thank you, Tony. Appreciate that. Um, I would imagine that Musk has thought of that. I mean, I don't know how much consideration Musk gives uh, to the political world. Uh, Apple wanted to be kind of rogue and do it their own way until Apple realized how political their company was, whether they wanted to be or not. Um, there's a little bit of um, Steve Jobs in Elon Musk. And that, uh, you know, I walked to the beat of my own drum and nobody's going to change that. I mean, you know, Jobs was a guy that basically took his last breath walking to the beat of his own drum. Um, Teal and Zuckerberg don't seem to be as inclined or as um, as motivated as Musk and the late Steve Jobs did on walking to the beat of their own drum. So, yes, I mean, when Musk puts this deal together, let's say Reuters is right, and by the end of the week, maybe by midweek, we've consummated a deal that's done. He owns Twitter. He can do with it whatever he chooses to do with it. What sort of political leadership? What will be the outrage by Pelosi and Schumer and Biden and Obama, you know, and Hillary? Because I've already heard Obama and Clinton are kind of, pre kind of prepping for this when they're saying that misinformation and, you know, outright lies. Somebody has to, I mean, if you can't count on the government to police some of the misinformation, then the government, I mean, the government has a duty and a responsibility to police some of the um. You think some that of the was the motivation for Obama's speech last week? Oh, of course. Of course. Oh, no question about it.
I mean, that's why he came out of hiding uh, and and basically challenged some of the um, some of the world order on. Hey, you know, we can't allow misinformation to become so <laughs> mainstream. The liberals are getting ready to lose their grip on that platform. Well, you, you got a billionaire who doesn't. I mean, you got basically you got an American oligarch. Because that's what Elon Musk is. I mean, that's level. We're famous for saying Russian oligarchs. We've got oligarchs over here. <laughs> Peter Thiel is an American oligarch. Mark Zuckerberg is an American oligarch. Um, th- there are probably 100 American oligarchs at Wall Street that we don't know the names of. Um, and Elon Musk is now, if he buys Twitter, he is now an American oligarch. Not by definition, but, but absolutely um, he is. Let's go to the phone. Here's Bon in Mullins. Good morning. Well, I believe the uh, electric cars are the same thing as the light bulbs a couple of years ago. Everybody had those compact fluorescents, and we all know how that worked out. And now we've gone to LEDs, and the world's a far better place. Uh, and the bulbs are more efficient and better, et cetera, and so forth. So I believe the electric cars of today are going to be replaced by something far better in the near future. Um, I'll hang up and listen. Thank you, sir. I would imagine that. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I've never I been. I don't think anybody on this show has ever expressed um, disillusion w- with the reality of the electric car could become a big part of um, passenger travel. I think the only argument I've tried to make, I can't speak for the masses, the argument I've tried to make is it's a very ambitious goal when you include um, the, the freight liners and the tractor trailers, the airplanes. I mean, the, the, I'm not talking about moving me, Mike, or Dave Baker from here to work, back to home, uh, back to work. I'm talking about, you know, the enormous amount of commerce and economic activity that is uh, that we depend on. You know, via, and I'm building homes. I'm thinking about clearing lots and building highways, earth-moving equipment. I mean, I don't. Very few people can comprehend how much torque is generated and demanded and required of a big caterpillar bulldozer when you're pushing debris and dirt and trees and whatever it takes uh, for infrastructure improvements and and construction and building cities and neighborhoods. I mean, that's always the point I'm trying to make. Off the no, ground. no question about it. I mean, to get you know uh, a behemoth of a seven forty seven. You know, with a couple of uh, 500 people off the ground. I mean, I just, to me, that was kind of pie in the sky. I've never doubted that there was a better way to get people from point A to point B. And I think we're at the precipice of doing some and of that. Technology will get there. And when charging an electric vehicle is at least as convenient as going to a gas station to fill up, man, you get there. And, and if, if it's good to comparably priced. And, and that's kind of the, the market. You know, right. our complaint or your complaint and my complaint be has been, you know, the government's attempt to distort some of those market forces and, and really and truly, Rev, let's be honest, to misrepresent some of the realities. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Michael in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hello, Michael. Good morning. Thank you, Ken. I enjoy your show. I like the fact that you do local politics and uh, also the national stuff. And But uh, in reference Twitter, um, I'm willing to make a Coca-Cola bet that the uh, stock on Twitter um, or their traffic, maybe that's a better way to put it, their traffic on their platform will go up 30% when they unleash it. And the board has kept this tamped down because of wokeness. And the thing is, can you imagine how many people will get back on it if they just let Trump back on, Uh, not to mention a lot of other people? So thanks, 
and uh, I'll listen. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. The, the only exception I'll take with the caller, we don't make Coca-Cola bets around here. We make Pepsi-Cola bets around here on Pepsi of Florence. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, but I get the uh, the argument. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that if if people believe that they're being treated fairly and, and not being censored or, or disadvantaged in the, in other words, if Rev's got an opinion about Disney and it's supportive of the, you know, the the Disney side of the equation or the liberal side of the equation. He gets first and foremost attention. If I want to argue from a different perspective, then I'm buried in the minutia. Th- then, yeah, I mean, I think no question about it, you'll see a tremendous uptick in conservative Americans who engage in the world of Twitter. A lot of us, myself included, guys, I mean, when I went on Facebook, I did it about twice a week, sometimes every day. I had a lot to say. I wanted to say it. And um, and the next thing you know, we we can't boost. And we, we believe we're getting shadow banned. We saw a declining audience. And I mean, it may, maybe we suck at it. We don't think we did, but, but ref convinced me, no, man, I'm telling you, there's some of these, I don't know how they do it, but there are algorithms, there are moderators that, that certain catch words and catch phrases and you get categorized. And I think if you're somebody who aggressively, uh, aggressively represents a conservative opinion, you're dealt with differently. I don't think anybody believes that's not the case. I think the left tries to insinuate, yeah, but you must do that. Because these rambunctious, wild-eyed, hayseed, redneck Trump voters, I mean, there's no place in discourse, public discourse, for their behavior, their antics, their demeanors, uh, or their demeanor. And I just, I don't buy that. I mean, America affords you an opportunity to say whatever it is you choose to say, as long as you're not personally threatening another human being. And I think if, 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 if Elon Musk is successful in buying Twitter, and he puts Donald Trump back on Twitter, I think the universe of Twitter users increase exponentially now 30 percent i've got no idea what the number will be but it will be a much more profitable model but here's the deal with twitter and the board and the the employees at twitter they have basically made as a priority wokeism they i mean the stock is 18 cent more today than it was when it went public in 2013 so in nearly a decade the stock price is not appreciated you've made a bad investment if you've invested in twitter I mean, it is the de facto public square. Elon Musk's words, not mine, but it's not worth any more today than it was 10 years ago. Why? Because they have agreed that censoring conservative opinion is more beneficial than being profitable. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. A couple of callers on the phone. Let's go there. Jeff in Florence. Hello, Jeff. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Jeff. Hey, um, so Ken, talking about the electric motors and uh, you know the fossil fuels, um, the good thing to remember is like the um, electric motors are, are wildly reliable. You know, they don't have wear and tear, they don't have all that damage, so they're they they are a, a long lasting um, option versus a combustion engine. But they they are difficult for planes and for trains and uh, other cruise ships. But we're already seeing cruise ships shift to different fuel sources. Like Ford has on their internal combustion side, they have patented an internal combustion engine that will run on hydrogen, blue ammonia. Um, There's airplanes being tested right now that fly on hydrogen. And as far as Caterpillar goes, uh, how many forklifts do you see that run on gasoline? 
Yeah, a lot of the uh, a lot of the lifts in my manufacturing propane. past were propane. That's that's a clean, correct, good source of fuel, mm-hmm. and we've got that, and that's not going to change. So, we Jeff, what Jeff, what happens to Exxon and Shell and BP? I mean, if we do they're transition, gonna yeah, they're they're going to be fine. They're already transitioning. If you if you if you look up Exxon's thirty uh, year plan, you're going to see investment in LNG, propane, methane, blue ammonia. They're already doing it. Do you agree that – I want to get you on the record here now because we're agreeing more than I'm comfortable with. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're getting uncomfortable. So, so, do, so do you agree that the the Biden agenda, or let's say the Democrat agenda, uh, is, is too ambitious? In other words, I've never argued let's not, let's not try to find a more efficient way to – to, to get people into into the air or get people point A to point B or to ship product or goods across the country. It's just the government seemed to be unrealistically ambitious. Is that a fair criticism? Uh, so here, here's what I'll say to you. Is it not, it, did, did they make um, proclamations or have they um, made um, ambitious goals? They have. But let me ask you, let me answer it th- this way. How much money do you think that the petrochemical industry and the automotive industry have spent in lobbying in the last 25, 30 years to stop that progression? Oh, probably an unbelievable amount of money. More? Uh, would you say more than is reasonable? Sure. Yeah. So that's that's what you have to fight against, right? So status quo of business is if it isn't broken, don't fix it. And if they don't think it's broken, they're going to keep going down that path with that con- con- internal combustion engine. Is- and so the government has a has a job to do to try and move to alternatives to fight the lobbying money that's buying politicians, Democrat and Republicans, that they, they buy everybody to keep it the way it is. But but surely one group of lobbyists will be replaced by another. Oh, oh yeah, no doubt about it. Listen, there are subsidies right now. You know who owns the majority of the ethanol plants in the United States right now? Uh, I would imagine a, a probably currently wealthy company. It's Exxon. Yeah. It's Valero. It's <laughs> it's all those guys. So these companies came in. Poet. Um, uh, um, this other one was called uh, Green. Um, Green Plains, they built all these ethanol plants and, you know, they reap these subsidies. Then when the subsidies go away, because the lobbying drives the subsidies down, tries to get rid of them, these plants started closing, becoming inefficient. So who stepped up and bought them pennies on a dollar? Your your petrochemical, your petrol companies did. And guess what? Now that they own the ethanol plants, why do you think they're pushing E85? Yeah. So do you think Exxon fights that? No, because they own the plants now. Well, we've always agreed so there. Be- I mean, we've you and I, as yeah. much as we disagree, we agree that Citizens United is bad and corporations have bought pretty much all Republicans and all Democrats that have any influence. And I'm talking about major influence on American energy policy or any other policy for that matter. Yeah. Um, and and I, I did want to – so I – there, there will be planes that are running on blue ammonia, uh, ethanol, methanol. Um, there are fuel sources coming for these larger vehicles, these caterpillars. 
and it, and it's it is going to shift that way. I did want to get your take during your commercial. You just had a, a, a an ad for a candidate running against Tom Rice, um, and he was talking about like let's impeach Tom Rice because he tried to impeach Trump. Trump. Do you, has your opinion changed a little bit about that after the McCarthy tapes have been released? No, not not my opinion has not. I mean, and Russell Fry is the guy you're talking about. Uh, Tom was actually on the show last week, and then we had Robert Cahaley on Friday talking about the polling of this race. I mean, that's the central issue. I mean, if you're running against Tom Rice, you're running against the guy that impeached Donald Trump in a Republican primary. So to me, you're wasting time talking about anything other than that single vote. I'm not saying it's the litmus test, but in the 7th Congressional District, it, it you know, can Tom Rice, a Republican, get away with voting to impeach Donald Trump and win re-election. I mean, that, that is right. such an interesting campaign issue and campaign that is in our backyard. Well, yeah, so so uh, you're familiar, I'm sure, then. Sure. Yeah, but I heard he, he denied it, but then it was proven. I mean, he, he was – I mean, I would have rather heard him say, yeah, I said it. I said it in a haste of moment of, you know, we were all well, mad I mean, as hell. and multiple Sure, times sure, he, about, he did. No, no question about it. And I think yeah, he's got he, egg on his face, and I think he tried to play both sides, and he can't do that. Yeah, he he lied about saying that Russia uh, was paying Trump and Rockham uh, Rohrbacher. Um, he's been he's been caught lying uh, multiple times about uh, his positions on Trump. And he may, but, and he may have gotten himself in a position now where it's going to be much more difficult to be Speaker of the House if the Republicans or when the Republicans. Would you want gain, him? No, not not me personally. No, I think he's too much of a creature of the establishment. I think he tries but, to be everything to everybody, and that's not the kind of guy I want as Speaker. So, so looking at how Liz Cheney's been vilified, can you see where her position was the position of the leadership of the Republicans on January 10th? I've always felt there was a, a, a portion or a share of the leadership who felt the way Liz Cheney felt. She was just woman enough to publicly pronounce it. No, I've always been skeptical to McCarthy and some of the other um, more establishment Republicans who have leadership positions in the caucus. Um, and McCarthy's a guy I've never, ever felt totally comfortable with well, as speaker Steve Scalise was on that phone call. yeah and then Scalise Scalise, Scalise, yeah, Scalise is a tragedy what happened but I've never been trusting of Steve Scalise in in the America first movement this kind of um this fork in the road that we talk a lot about you know that one road goes kind of more of a um traditional intellectual conservatism and the other to um America first I've never um trusted any of those people you're mentioning to be on board with this America First agenda, it was political expediency. They saw the polls. They knew that about 70% of all Republican primary voters are very much in the camp of America First, and they want to win re-election. If if you listen to that call and you listen to what they said and and you listen to the, the statements that happened on January 6th, they were not in a, a isolated group. That was the prevailing opinion of the Republican Party that Trump was dangerous. He did break the law. I mean, that's what they said. That's the they, prevailing. They, they I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree that that's the prevailing point of the Republican leadership in the House. That's never been the prevailing position of the electorate. And at the end of the day, the electorate matter more than those in leadership. And we'll find out if Liz Cheney can do what she did and get away with it. If Tom Rice can do what well, he did not, and get away with it's it. Not, it's it, it's they, they voted the conviction of, the, of, of their peers. Sure. But, so let's, let's not call them outliers. They're not. They were in the majority of the Republican Party January 6th. How many House January Republicans 6th. voted to impeach Donald Trump? 
nine. How many didn't? Uh, I mean, like, yeah, they they uh, they fell in line. That's the prevailing opinion of the Republican Party. Yeah, they fell in line. Well, I mean, no, that's the prevailing opinion. That that is the prevailing. When nine members voted to impeach and everybody else didn't, that is clearly, without debate, the prevailing opinion of the Republican Party. Don't don't you like politicians who don't worry about polls but do the right thing? Uh, Sure, I do. Okay, do you think they did that? I think they the prevailing opinion is that Donald Trump did not deserve to be impeached. I mean, that's clear that there is no debate to be had about that. We can talk phone calls, we can talk a lot of other, but the, the prevailing opinion amongst the Republican Party is that Donald Trump didn't deserve to be impeached. Therefore, the Democrats, along with nine or 10 Republicans, um, did that. Well, uh, uh, numerous times, I, I think you could, you could, you could say that uh, when people talk about politicians, they want somebody who'll do the right thing, not what is good for their career, right? Fair enough. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it, my man. I'm glad you guys started disagreeing. I was beginning to worry for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that call. Um, Kind of an interesting call. You know what he didn't talk about? Joe Biden. (laughs) Never said a word about the um, the dementia-stricken has-been that they thought was better than Donald Trump. And some of our crowd thought that Biden was a better choice than Trump. The prevailing opinion of the Republican electorate I mean, it'll it'll be loud and clear come, um, well, it begins in, I mean, we'll find out in, in May, in a couple of weeks. Well, in, in a week and a day in Ohio when we elect a Trump-endorsed senator or not. Um, and then I think we go from there to Pennsylvania, if I'm not mistaken, and maybe or maybe not Dr. Oz gets that nod. Um, as much as you'd like Trump to go away, it ain't going to happen. Not for a while. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Friday. Someone asked a question earlier about a voter integrity bill that made its way out of the House. During one of the breaks, I text our local delegation or some of the members of the local delegation and our newly elected state senator um, is calling in. So Mike Rickenbaugh is on the senator. How are you? Good morning, Ken. Doing well. Thank, Thank you. you very much for um, taking the opportunity to engage our listeners and um, explain and, and tell me if I'm wrong or right. But the voter integrity bill made it out of the House into the Senate. And someone expressed earlier frustration that the um, the Senate isn't expediting this bill as quickly as they wish. Can you tell us the latest as a newly elected senator? Well, it was a uh, baptism by fire on my sixth today. I that <laughs> I will say it did, as clarifying, it did make it out of the Senate, but there's an amendment in it that is the holdup. And kind of in a brief summary, um, when the bill came to us in the Senate from the House, uh, we all agreed, in the, at least in the Republican uh, majority, that we needed election integrity. But there was a stipulation in that bill that the governor was to retain the ability to appoint everyone on the state elections commission. And that was an inviolable for him. He didn't want to give any of that up. And our uh, Senate Majority Leader and in our caucus took the position that the State Election Commission failed us in 2020. There were irregularities. They didn't do enough about it. So now, instead of it just being a governor's appointment of that board, it was a governor's appointment with the advice and consent of the Senate for all positions on that board. And they went, we went back and forth and back and forth all day last Wednesday, and it eventually came back that the, uh, the governor 
Um, his office, as well as the House, took the position that that uh, was something they were not going to give up. Um, but the compromise was made later Wednesday that the governor would be okay with the uh, executive director of the State Elections Commission um, being at the advice and consent, essentially confirmed by the Senate. And that's where kind of the uh, there was a the the, the standoff, if sure. you will. So, Mike, um, that that bill will uh, will I mean, will there be further debate on this bill? Are you guys are back in session tomorrow, Wednesday and Thursday? Do you expect that to be revisited? Well, as it stands, and and the reason I voted against that amendment um, because I think election integrity has to be passed. Mm-hmm. Um, the Senate Majority Leader thought that the governor was bluffing, and there was a lot of conversations, and they said he's bluffing. The House is bluffing. They will not kill the bill over this. Uh, but myself and eight other senators, um, Republican senators, voted against that amendment because we wanted the bill to pass. So we were, we were okay with just the executive director being appointed because you know it's just too important. Sure. I took the governor at his word, and the governor has now said that, you know what, that killed the deal, that it will go back to the House, and the House will send it to the committee, and it will die there because it was a, a – it was too much of an overreach to ask for advice and consent of the entire state elections board. Gotcha. Mike, thank you for calling in. If you don't mind, I may try to run you down the week to see if we do revisit that and maybe get you back on the air with us toward the end of the week. Thank you very, very much. Please, please do. We yes, need sir. safe and fair elections, Ken. It's important. Thank you very much. Senator Mike Rickenbott will take a break. We'll be back in just a second. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Jason and Marion. Morning, Jason. Good morning, fellas. It's been a while. Um, Ken, you were talking last hour about the Twitter and Elon Musk uh, situation, and I wanted to get your take on what, uh, I guess it came out over the weekend with this um, uh, Ron DeSantis um, basically kind of coming to the defense or backing Musk, and he said in a press conference that Florida has some uh, Twitter stock somehow, and that he, that he was going to somehow take legal action um, against the board. And I kind of wanted to get your take on what does, how is that going to work and what does that mean going forward? Thank you, Jason. Appreciate that. It may not be necessary. Well, I mean, now. The, 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 the responsibility of a, a board does not have the right to be um, woke at the expense of shareholders or, or politically motivated at the expense of shareholders. This private company, you can do with it what you choose to do with it. I mean, you can be as woke as you choose to be. I mean, I, you know, discrimination laws apply, but I mean, as far as woke and censorship, a private company has every right to censor as they choose. So unless you don't want to make cakes for gay couples, then that's another story. Um, it's interesting how, you know, private business can't be private business until it kind of favors one side of the equation. But Ron DeSantis is talking about um, there is a there's an investment fund in the state of Florida that teachers and public service employees have invested in. In other words, the state matches, another, I don't know what the number is, let's say that um, that you contribute 9% of your pay. I think that's the number in South Carolina. If you're a state employee in South Carolina and you want to participate in the state employment, state retirement plan, then 9% of your salary is contributed um, every year for the life of your, for your work life while working as a state employee and then they match it. I don't know what the numbers are. It's different. Police officers get a certain match. Uh, college professors get a certain match. Uh, the guy that drives the backhoe gets a certain match. But that money is invested in the stock market, normally in mutual funds. And the, the public sector employee 
um, investment fund of the state of Florida owns a bunch of Twitter stock. Well, the governor of the state of Florida believes that it's his job to look after and safeguard and advocate for those workers who are invested in, you know, a lot of different sort of investment instruments, Twitter being one. And when Twitter decides to put the shareholder interest secondary to them being uh, politically motivated or woke or correct, whatever. I mean, there are a myriad of reasons they would do this. Then he believes they're breaching their responsibility and their duties as a fiduciary. And a corporate by corporate law basically says that a corporate board is fiduciary and the decisions it make must be in the best interest of the company and its shareholders. Profitability is what it's really referring to. So when DeSantis says that he's going to file some sort of lawsuit against um, against Twitter, he's arguing that the the people who work in the state government in Florida deserve to not be victimized by the debate you're having about free speech and censorship. Um, and Elon Musk is making a, a better than fair offer, and you need to accept it. I mean, it's really, it's a little bit of political posturing and positioning, but, uh, but in essence, that's the argument. That's the gist of the argument, the crux of the argument. The fundamental legality that Ron DeSantis is arguing, you can't put uh, political correctness and wokeness over profitability. It's your job to govern this company, maximizing its potential and profitability, not not doing the right thing as you perceive the right thing to be. Uh, whether it's left-wing censorship or right-wing censorship, that's not your job. Your, your actions have to be in the interest of the shareholder, and if you don't accept this guy's offer, then you're acting contradictory to that. Therefore, um, there's a lawsuit that'll cut you away. I mean, he's not the only one. I mean, I, I believe if they refuse to accept Musk's or, or Musk offer, um, the offer he's made via the, I mean, he, last week it was, well, the week before last, it was kind of informal. I'll give you this much. Okay, let's shake hands. Well, I mean, that doesn't carry weight in, in that world. I mean, you got to really solidify the offer and, and get specific and into the details, and Musk has done that. I mean, he's going to sell $21 million worth of uh, Tesla stock. That's his down payment, so to speak. He's going to borrow from Morgan Stanley and um, Citibank and uh, several others about $23 billion, and that's the purchase price. So $43 billion, $44 billion, $43.75 or somewhere there about is the, uh, is the purchase price, and I think they've got to take it. If they don't take it, they've got to really explain themselves as to why they don't, and I think there will be an abundance of lawsuits because they'll argue DeSantis will, you put, you put political activism in front of your responsibility as a fiduciary. Let's go to the phone. Here is Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So I'm going to take a different turn this morning, but Ken, in 2012, Florence County had six murders. We had four in one weekend. Um, and two of those were children. Uh, well, we had a Casey cop get murdered. Uh, you know, we obviously had the events up at the mall and uh, Columbia with a mass shooting. Uh, there was another mass shooting in the Lowe's country somewhere uh, recently, the last week or so. We had we got murder after murder on the Grand Strand. Uh, you can't turn on the TV without seeing somebody getting murdered down there. And all we get out of the legislature, including the folks that come on your program, is crickets. Um, <laughs> clearly what we're doing is not working. I um, mean, it's almost laughable um, 
you know, to start, uh, we need to repeal the, the 2010 Crime Reduction and Sentencing Reform Act. Um, it, it, it reformed sentencing, but it did not reduce crime. Um, yeah, Ken, trying to re- we can we can approach this thing with feel good politics all we want. Talk about how oh we don't need to incarcerate nonviolent offenders, but Ken, trying to rehabilitate criminals, whether they're violent or nonviolent, they, they always lead to being violent. But trying to rehabilitate these criminals while they are not behind jail bars has proven to be a failure. We cannot do it. Um, it just be nice to see something coming out of the legislature uh, to do something. Um, because what we're doing is not working. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. I got a few texts over the weekend. We had three shootings, three murders in Florence in 36 hours. I'm sorry, 24 hours. Three murders in 24 hours. That's one every eight hours in Florence, South Carolina. What we believe, I'm speculating here, uh, gang-related. Had a kid, a South Florence kid, a student, young kid, killed at Myrtle Beach. And um, I have no idea what the specifics, but yeah, I mean, Jim's exactly right. Um, uh, several others have, uh, c- kind of brought attention or raised awareness about the crime problem. Uh, yeah, I mean, th- th- there's no doubt about it that we have a problem and it's progressing. It's getting worse. It's scary. I mean, it's not just concerning and alarming. It's scary that we live in a, a non-metropolitan area. Uh, I think the city of Florence has a population of somewhere around 33,000 people and we're having murders. Um, what is the, the, the sentiment? I mean, what are the sensibilities of our elected leaders? And I'm talking about the city, the county, law enforcement, um, some of the solicitors, the magistrates, the judges, uh, the, the state government, the federal government. It, it's, clearly, um, it's clearly out of control. Oh, let's be honest. The numbers, and I'm not being hyperbolic here, we have a very serious crime problem in a place that has historically not had a very serious crime problem. Why is that the case? Now, now I believe that sentencing leniency and guidelines have contributed to that. I think the Obama doctrine, and by the Obama doctrine, I mean um, some people are incarcerated that don't need to be incarcerated. Um, there's a lot of ambiguity there, but but I think Jim's right. I think a lot of other callers are right. Uh, the text I got over the weekend, um, we have a major, major problem with crime um, all over this country. Now, now in, in all honesty, let's be candid. Do we really care? Have we ever cared about the crime in San Francisco? Have we honestly ever cared about the crime in Seattle, or the crime in Miami, or the crime in New York City, or the crime in Chicago? We read about it. And it touches our heart to see how many young people are killed every weekend in Chicago. But it's another animal when it's at your doorsteps. It's a different situation when it's local. And and I'd love to be a part of what what are the solutions. I'm going to level with you. Damn a Blue Ribbon Committee. I mean, I'm tired of Blue Ribbon Committees. I'm tired of symposiums and think tanks. I'm tired of, um, you know, a national conversation uh, excuse me again, damn a national conversation about violence in America. Let's address it. Let's get serious people who are serious-minded enough to take some political heat, to say some things that need to be said, that cut through some of the political correctness, the wokeness, and the nonsense that we've allowed to help shape this debate, and let's get to brass tacks. We've got a crime problem. How do we address it? I think we support law enforcement. 
I think there's some other things we got to do. Um, I think we call for uh, both federal legislation, state legislation, even local legislation, for that matter, to more aggressively understand that this is an issue that is real. It's at our doorsteps. Um, how many of you are more afraid today than you normally are? I mean, I am. I'll level with you. I am. I mean, I've got a daughter and a, and a, and a wife. Uh, I'm not this nervous about my, and I don't know why. Maybe that's the the Southern thing or, or the old-fashioned thing, not to be as I'm concerned about my two sons as I am my daughter and wife. I guess chivalry is something uh, respected and revered in the good old South, but, but it's, I mean, it's troubling. I mean, it's alarming. It's scary. The number of people that, that are having violent crimes committed against them. And, you know, we've had law enforcement on here. We've complained about magistrates and judges and solicitors and, and politicians, but I'm tired of having think tanks and blue ribbon committees try to address this by, you know, let's have a national conversation. We don't need a national Nothing conversation. Gets done with well, I mean, well, the reason you have these blue ribbon committees is because everybody can blame everybody else. And we could have come out of this with some really good policy or some um so some energy that led to better outcomes, but but we've got to demand of our local officials demand not request demand of our local officials what are you going to do exactly about the crime problem in in our part of the country once again we read about things in chicago we read about things in san francisco we heard about things in new york city we have three murders in 24 hours in good old florence south carolina the same sorts of things are happening in Sumter and Darlington, and I uh, talked about the beach a second ago, but this is no time for, for Blue Ribbon Committees or think tanks or a national conversation. This is a time the public must demand of the people in charge, how are we going to address crime in, in this moment in time? Let's go to the phone. Here's Robin in Florence. Morning, Robin. Hey, how y'all doing this morning? Hey, Robin. Ken, I want to ask you, I know you have the uh, Sheriff's Department on here and the uh, Highway Patrol, but do you ever have anybody with the Florence Police Department on here? Um, I was told they were short 30 to 40 officers, and I never hardly see a Florence Police Department officer doing any law enforcement or traffic control in Florence. Now, have they defunded the police in Florence, or I was going to see if you could find out. I will make a point of that. Uh, we, we've not addressed that from the city side as much as we have uh, from the county side uh, how can we be short officers when there's so much money, the abundance of funds? That's my frustration. I mean, and, and, I, and I'll get candid here for a second. It may hurt some, some feelings of local folk. Um, I don't have any idea how much the city's got. I, the, the county has a lot of money. I mean, the county has an abundance of money, and I think I've walked through some of this, um, the American Rescue Plan, I think it was $13.6 or $7 million, another $13.6 or $7 million is due in September. I mean, I see some of the fund balances uh, so some of the other expenditures that have happened, um, how much of that money is being spent on public service? And I'm talking about public safety. I'm talking about law enforcement. I'm talking about, you know, patrolling neighborhoods, arresting criminals, investigating crimes. I mean, to me, that is a priority of the sheriff's department and the city police uh, force. And, and maybe just maybe, I mean, we've said this before, that it appears if anybody's going to do um, journalistic work here, it's going to be us. So maybe um, I, I don't want to be a part of a blue ribbon committee. I don't want to be a part of a national conversation. I want people to come to this studio, local elected officials, both in law enforcement or hired uh, local officials. What are we doing 
to address the crime problem in our neighborhoods? How are we dedicating um, county, city, local, state government to improving um, the safety and circumstances of, of where we live? I mean, they, you know, th- th- these are hard questions and they're not easy answers. But, but the first thing you got to do is admit you've got a problem. Now, now, one of the big concerns I have is back to the mayoral race. In the, in the most recent Florence mayor's race, someone during a debate said, we don't have a problem. I wonder if that's changed. I wonder if that mayor now admits that we have a problem and, and let's get together and address that problem. This is not a Republican or a Democrat issue. I mean, some of the party, and, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, the, the majority of cities that are governed by Democrats have higher crime rates than the cities governed by Republicans. That's not a radio show host trying to fan the flames or be hyperbolic. That is simply the truth. Cities that are governed by Democrats tend to have higher crime rates than cities governed by Republicans. Florence is a city governed by Democrats. We have a crime problem. I want Democrats and Republicans to explain, not to me, but to our listeners, to the citizens, to the residents, what are the plans to address the crime in these communities? We deserve to know. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. You said you read where the mayor of Florence is scheduled to hold a news conference today. Yep. The spoken word is not an accomplishment. A speech given does not fix a single thing about the issues. Let, let's hear a, a, a precise and specific plan for how to make our community safer, period. I mean, that's your job. You ask people to vote for you to be a leader. And I'm not picking on the mayor here because I think this applies across the board. I mean, whether you're county council, city council, uh, state delegation member, love federal government, I mean, public safety is paramount. It is the priority of government. Government has a responsibility to allocate funds to effectively police our communities and keep people safe. That is a fundamental function of government, and we're failing at that. So when you have a press conference or you, you know, have an op-ed, that is simply a spoken or written word and nothing more. What are we doing? What action plan have we funded and implemented to make sure that people are safer under your control and, and your you know, uh, views of government. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, wow, guys. Since I uh, got off and came back on, we have gone full circle on the subjects here. But talking about the crime, it, it seems to have gotten worse in the last two years. And I'm wondering how much this gang activity is related to the illegal immigration that's going on. Because most of the people join gangs, and it's, it's getting worse in South Carolina, just like everywhere else. But as far as what I called about originally was our energy policy. You know, I'm always been for all of the above. I mean, how do they expect they're going to build these Tesla cars without steel and you've got to have electricity to build steel which comes you can't do away with oil and natural gas but you know the the administration now said okay we're opening up more leases but at the same time they've increased the royalties 
own those leases. In other words, we there's companies, oil companies, when they drill on public land, give a royalty to the United States for the opportunity to drill that oil. So instead of getting all these royalties, and it was somewhere around $500 billion a year, we're paying over $500 billion a year to buy oil from overseas. So that puts a hell of a hole in your budget. And that's all Democrats do is when when they want to reduce the price of something, say, we're going to save you money. All they do is throw more of our tax dollars at it, like Obamacare. That was going to reduce the cost of health care. No, it didn't. It increased the cost of subsidies and expanded Medicaid. Medicaid was probably 90% of Obamacare. And all that did was had taxpayers, you know, pay more money for it. And we were talking about Twitter earlier. They don't care about the share price. When Donald Trump was in his heyday, Twitter was worth $77 a share. When they ran ran him off and banned him, that's when it started dropping. And all these companies are dropping, Netflix, Disney. So, you know. It's a private company, but they're owned by public shareholders, and I think they're going to have to listen to us because they're they're already uh, hearing winds of lawsuits from their shareholders. So we got a lot of problems in this world, and we got to elect people who will do what they say they're going to do. Congress requires lobbyists. Why? Because they want the money. Look at, you were talking about Microsoft and Apple. They were fine not having lobbyists. And then Congress decided they were going to regulate them and split them up, and they're getting too big. And this, So they had to send lobbyists to Congress to grease their palms. I mean, if, if that's not obvious, I don't know what is. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. I want to go back to the energy question Joe was talking about a second ago because I've read a lot about this trying to better understand it. Um once again, not opposed to the electric vehicle, not opposed to the um, to the hydrogen plane or some of the other things uh, Jeff and I were discussing and debating and, and agreeing probably more than we than we disagree there. But but it, and it really goes back to the mayor having a press conference. We live in a world where, where the political I don't know the political life has been um, it's it's kind of the road to stardom. We we've got politicians and historically politicians wanted to be rock singers and rock singers wanted to be politicians now there's not much difference why is dr oz relevant why is donald trump such a big deal why is jd vance uh we, we've taken the art of politics and we've turned it into some degree celebrity it it's absolutely show business and the person who gives the best speech the post person that writes the uh, the most impressive essay that they're revered did you hear what obama said did you read what George Will wrote? Yeah, but none of this is 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 where the rubber meets the, meets the road. Um, let's use the electric car as an example. Um, I've read that some of the main ingredients, some of the main um, mineral, minerals that that go into making, you know, the the electric vehicle, cobalt, um, lithium, nickel, uh, Tesla's already having problems finding a supply, an abundant supply. Of these sorts of um i mean the mining is not there so they've made some of these um and they're going to be probably challenged in court 
some of these secret packs that they've made with um with mining companies for their nickel supply. So somebody reads in Atlantic magazine that we can build cars charged by electric, we can fly planes charged by um hydrogen, and all of a sudden, well, that's that. I mean, that's it. I mean, it's as easy as that. Ninety-five percent of the necessary supply chains, and I'm talking about Rivian, which is an EV, an electric car company. Uh, they actually make a lot of trucks and SUVs and things like that. And they were probably doing this longer than than Tesla. They're not owned by Elon Musk, and they have been quite as cutting edge. But um, but they're already talking about the the supply chain that doesn't even exist. That they say that we're using about ten percent of the nickel we'll need if ten percent of the cars are electric. Let me say that again. That that they say that we're using about ten percent of the nickel needed if we meet the target of ten percent of all our passenger vehicles being electric cars. They say that 95% of the supply chain does not even exist today. I mean, do you think you wake up one day, snap your fingers, or somebody gives a speech, and and out of thin air comes a supply chain ready to equip us with um, all the minerals? The, the The guy from Rivian, I read this in the Wall Street Journal, he says that the semiconductor shortage would be um, basically, as Jackie Gleason said and Sheriff Beaver T. Justice, baby crap <laughs> up alongside <laughs> what the cobalt, lithium, and nickel shortage could be. Um, th- those are going to have profound impacts on the transportation sector of our economy. And we don't think through those things because the lady who wrote for the Atlantic went to Davos and the man who writes for the New York Times went to Davos and they came back with, um, you know, just thoughts swirling around in their heads. We're not going to burn this nasty fossil fuel any longer. Um, I've heard, uh, I've seen the promised land. And the promised land consists of a cobalt, lithium, and nickel, and not the the nasty fossil fuels that we've been burning uh, with the internal combustion engine. And nobody's thinking about all the other components that are required to get there. We, we just, how we how we respect and revere those who can give a speech, those who can write a impressive paper or essay is beyond me. We need people who know how to do things, not talk about things, not write about. We got enough damn people in this country that write about things and talk about things, myself included. We need people who know how to do things. I don't want a press conference and, and a speech given about how, we, how we're going to make Florence safer. Let's make it safer. Let's make it safer. Screw the speech. Spare us the press conference. Get to work and make it safer. Stop writing and speaking about things and do things. Let's go to the phone. Steve in Florence. Morning, Steve. Morning, guys. I have a particular set of skills, so I'll supposed to be the one to say it. The problem in the black community, fatherless homes, a welfare family. I come out of Chicago. And it's black-on-black violence. It's not white-on-black violence. It's not black-on-white violence. It's gang violence. And they're mostly black. You got the Hispanics doing the same thing, but they're killing each other, fighting over territory to sell their dope or run their girls or whatever. In Florence, one of the callers said it, too. I hardly ever see any police officers for Florence. A few state guys run by, a sheriff, but like one or two cars of a Florence driver and I'm a truck driver. So I'm driving all over the place all day. Um, I don't, 
know really how to fix it besides really crack down on the gang violence and you're gonna need a little task force for that and break in some doors in the middle of the night and bust these guys but that's all i gotta say about that thank you steve appreciate it well the majority of law enforcement will tell you is repeat offenders i mean it's the, it's the same person over and over and over again i mean we went through a list i mean it, it was pretty bizarre how many crimes this person has been charged with since 2007. So in 15 years, I want to say it's like 40 offenses. I mean, some were minor, some were fairly major. Um, you know, intent to distribute drugs. I mean, that's a pretty major offense. And at what time at what time does that person lose the right to be free and living amongst us? I mean, they've abused that privileges or that privilege. You and I are a little bit unsafer that that person is out on the street at what time do we incarcerate those people, and um, or, or do do we wait till they do kill someone? I've always wondered that. You know, um, if someone has been convicted—I didn't say charged—convicted of um, multiple offenses of you know the intent to distribute narcotics. At what point in time do we not believe that that person is going to have a gun and discharge that gun? Well, I mean, he finally did it now, so it's time we. You know, we incarcerate that person. Well, somebody's loved one is dead. It's kind of a it's a it's a it's a it's a difficult situation for law enforcement to be in. But whatever we're doing, I think most of us can agree is not working. What we've got to revisit the, the way we're dealing with crime in our part of the country. Let's go to the phone. Luke in Sumter, listening to WDXY. Hi, Luke. Hey, Ken, um, I've been in law enforcement a little over 21 years now, and um, I'm also an adjunct here at USC Sumter. Um, we have programs that we've seen over the decades that work to help fight crime. CompStat is a perfect example of that. I mean, Chief Bratton in New York implemented it. Um, closer to home, Chief Greenberg down in Charleston implemented it back in the day, and that's what cleaned up downtown Charleston. Uh, one of the biggest problems is, is a lot of agencies – do not use the CompStat program. It's, it's a program that's improving the work. Um, what is it? Explain it to us. I mean, it, it is, give me the cliff it is note. A, it's a, well, it stands for computer statistics. But basically what it takes is all your stats, and it looks at everything kind of preventive crime measures. But it's a management style as well. So you basically utilize your aggressive officers and your community officers together. And so you have community officers who are working in the community, who build trust in the community. And these are good quality officers that you have in there that are there for that reason. But they're also gathering intel on that community. And then basically that intel and these stats are passed on to the aggressive officers. So when you have, when you build that community and then you have aggressive officers that roll in and start doing these zero tolerance stops, um, there is the trust issue is not there anymore because you've already built that trust with your community officer. So you don't end up with a Ferguson, Missouri situation. You have a situation where your community officers have built that trust We've told you, we've warned you, this is what's going to happen. Here comes your aggressive officers. They do zero tolerance stops until you start looking at your stats the next week or two weeks down the road, and then you lost the pressure a little bit. So you're using analytics to predict where the crime's going to be and who's going to commit it. Absolutely. And it's proven and and trustworthy. Absolutely. And it's been proven to work over and over again. The problem is agencies like to use one or the other. Well, let's use community policing but not the aggressive officers. Or let's just use aggressive officers and not community policing. You have to use them both, and you have to. You ha- it has to be accountable. You have to. You do meetings every week with these folks to make sure what they're doing in this area is working. If it's not working, well, we'll find somebody that can implement these programs in that area to make it work. 
Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. There's boots on the ground. Somebody's been involved in law enforcement. And that, these are the kind of situations or the kind of conversations that we need to have. F- folks, I'll tell you, politicians aren't good at fixing things. But they're good at talking about things. They're good at meeting about things. They're not very good at fixing things. This is an issue that has to be addressed. It can't be spoken about. It can't be um, conversated away. This is something that we're going to have to, in a very aggressive and matter-of-fact position or fashion, um, implement things that maybe or maybe not people are comfortable uh, with. Who cares? Let's make our home a safer place together. Let's go to the phone. Jim in the PD. Hello, Jim. You're on the air. Say now, what's going on? Hey, Jim. You know, these uh, judges that we have, they let them out on bond and bail and everything else. Why don't we elect law enforcement officers that's got years of experience, lieutenants and above, and put them in the judge's place? And then we wouldn't, the crime would probably go away. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. I've, I've, I've had that debated before. Um, instead of appointing uh, people who are of the right ilk, of the right pedigree, um, you know, in these magistrate positions or judgeships or solicitors, let's put former law enforcement officers, the current law enforcement officers, for that matter, who have some degree of understanding at, uh, at what the streets are like. And um, I don't care what it takes. Let's put everything on the table. I mean, let, let's st- let's stop talking about it. Let's stop writing about it. And let's address the issue before somebody else, another innocent person loses their life. This is nonsense. And it's, and it's not just problematic, it's scary. People are beginning to make conscientious decisions that alter the way they live their lives. Uh, I've done it. I mean, I've told you before, my wife and daughter, um, I'm not their boss. I'm their father and I'm their, uh, their husband. My wife's husband, my daughter's father. I have demanded, as much as a father and husband can demand, don't you go there at night. Don't you do that. Don't you go near there past six o'clock in the afternoon. You don't understand. It's my job to protect you. Part of my protection is to give you warning about things that I know are more likely to happen there. And you can't live your life in, uh, in fear. You can't be afraid. No, but I can't be stupid about it. I'm not going to live my life in fear. A bear may kill me. It won't be in a cave. I can assure you of that. We all make strategic decisions in our life. And it's shameful that a lot of people around here Florentines and people who live in Florence County, Sumter County, Orangeburg County. I mean, I got to believe if it's here, it's there. I mean, I don't live in Sumter County. Is there a crime problem in Sumter County? Is there a crime problem in Orangeburg County? Has there been an increase? We know there's been an increase in violent crime in Florence County. Has there been one in Sumter County? Has there been one in, um, in Orangeburg County? We know this. We know where the majority of crimes are going to happen before they happen. I mean, I just told you. There's certain places I ask my wife and daughter to not go. Why do I not want them there? Because I believe those places are more likely to have crime take place. I mean, if I can figure that out, then surely law enforcement with the support and assistance of the analytics can can determine that. I mean, you know, I've told some of these guys off the record that that there's some very um, serious measures and offensive measures, let's say it that way. There's some pretty offensive things that they'd like to see take place, but you know what they believe? There's no question about it. If we could get people to agree to do this, everybody is safer on day one. But it's some hard political decisions, and it doesn't seem to me that the majority of people in charge are willing to make some of those 
hard and serious decisions. And also out of KC uh, over the weekend, there was an officer shot and killed uh, responding to a domestic disturbance middle of the night Saturday Saw that. Saw that. Um, I saw an argument that a lot of the youth are, we've been desensitized to violence. They play these gun, these gun games, and they've got a gun, and they shoot somebody. And, I mean, I've never played a modern game. I mean, they say they're so lifelike now. You know what I mean? So, so, I mean, it, it looks like you're really shooting someone. And uh, but, but when the game's over, the person gets up and you shoot them again and again and again and again. I mean, in real life, you don't get shot and get up and again and again and again and again. And then we've got to address this. You know, there are a lot of, I don't believe there's a silver bullet. I mean, I don't think there's one thing out there that causes all the crimes to be committed, nor do I think there's one thing that law enforcement or the political body could do to address the crime problem. It's probably a series of things, but let's get started. And let's get started now. Back in a minute. We'll have to sanitize this studio for an hour when I get through with um, the last 30 minutes. I get real passionate about this crime problem, and I'm getting some text here from local elected officials about things that need to be done. These guys will come on the air. I mean, they, they'll, they'll say these uh, they'll say these things out loud that I think need to be uh, said out loud. And, and a lot of this is, um, is the quality of officer. Uh, why, if we have an inferior quality of officer, I'm not saying that we do, but, but why do we go to work to get paid? Correct. I mean, all of us go to work to get paid. Uh, those that are really good at the job in a true capitalist society, you make more than those who aren't real good at the job. Are we, are we applying those same, um, versions of capitalism in the public sector? What, what is a really good law enforcement officer worth? What is a really good police officer worth? What is a really good deputy sheriff worth? What is a really good highway patrolman worth? A lot. What, what are the ones that aren't very good? Put them in another profession. Let's take a break. Back in a minute.